Hey, folks, welcome to the Dark Horse Podcast live stream number 177. I am Dr. Brett Weinstein. My pronouns are I and me. This is Dr. Heather Hying. Her pronouns are also I and me. Wait, that's going to get confusing, isn't it? It is confusing. The way we deal with this in our household is that when I refer to you, I use she, her pronouns. Whoa, I know that sounds edgy. And when you refer to me, you use he, him pronouns, Mm -hmm. also edgy. That's just how we keep it straight. Yeah, how English and all the other languages came up with a solution to this problem. A solution to a problem that reduces ambiguity. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, Now, as I said in our Q&A last week, if you're wondering about your gender identity, you can just strike that right off your to-do list because it's not a thing and you don't need to worry about it. (laughs) Right. Usually, if you're sitting next to someone reasonable, if you're at all confused, you can just ask them. They can tell you. Yeah, or not. But Or not. Yeah. All right. So here we are, 177, not prime. Nope. Not prime. Three by 59. I totally knew that. Mm. No, not totally know uh, that. And here we are live streaming on Rumble, and we will do a Q&A exclusively on Rumble when we are done here. We're going to move most of our usual preamble to a postamble this week and jump very quickly into, um, into our sponsors. Uh, but first, we just encourage you, if you're watching on YouTube, uh, uh, to come over to Rumble and watch there, subscribe to the channel. Uh, we appreciate it. And we'll talk more about all the other places uh, that you can find us at the end of the episode. But for right now, we will start with our sponsors, uh, who we ap- whom we oh, will start whom. with. No, we will start with our sponsors, whom we appreciate very, very much. And we have three of them, as always, at the top of the hour. Here we go. Okay, our first one, our first sponsor this week is brand new to us. It's iHerb. That's I-H-E-R-B, and yes, that is how it's pronounced, even though the word herb is not pronounced with the uh, audible H. You cannot make me pronounce the H. Well, that's why I'm reading the ad. There it is. Because they insist. (laughs) Good Lord. It's iHerb, I-H-E-R-B. iHerb offers the best curated selection of wellness products at terrific value across a variety of categories, including supplements, sports nutrition, beauty, and baby. That's a category iHerb can be and should be your one-stop shop for all your health and wellness needs. Okay, so when they approached us, when iHerb approached us, my thought was, what makes them different? What is special about yet another online retailer? Then I found my own notes from two years ago when I had set up an account with iHerb and begun ordering from them. I had already answered my own question. I had just forgotten the answer, but I'm going to tell you what the answer was and remains today which is that what makes iHerb different is that they really do carefully curate what they sell and they do it extremely well. So in the wake of um, pandemic and such, uh, we had begun to uh, look for supplements, which is not something we had ever done before. And I had begun to use consumerlab.com, which does very careful analyses of supplements to assess whether they contain what they say they do and whether they don't contain some things that you don't want them to. But many of their most highly recommended brands just aren't very widely available. They're very hard to find. And what I had found uh, a couple years ago, and it is still true today, is that iHerb is the exception to that rule. In a sea of bewildering and often fallacious claims about what is in the product you are buying, iHerb is selling the best of the best, products that actually are what they claim to be iHerb cares what's inside every bottle that comprise your morning beauty or wellness routine. They test and verify to ensure that what you find in every bottle is what's supposed to be there. On their site, you can search by category, brand, or ailments you want help with, like circulatory support or digestive support. And you can further narrow your search by ratings, price, and dietary restrictions. Their site is easy, convenient, and accurate. For a limited time, new customers get 22% off their entire order with our exclusive offer. So go to iHerb.com and use promo code DARKHORSE to get 22% off. 
In the winter, when the sun is scarce and we're spending more time inside, we have begun taking daily supplements, D and C and zinc and magnesium, and sometimes a few more, things like turmeric. We get it all from iHerb. Everything I've ordered from iHerb has been a snap, arrived quickly, and I know I'm getting what I'm paying for. I also know that my products have been taken care of before they get to me, as all iHerb orders are stored and shipped exclusively by iHerb, no third-party sellers, and they ship from climate-controlled fulfillment centers. They ship to over 185 countries, and in the U.S., free shipping kicks in on all purchases over $20. So, it's time to get your health in check with iHerb. Our listeners get 22% off your first order when you use code DARKHORSE at iHerb.com. That's 22% off your first order at iherb.com, promo code DARKHORSE. Choose iHerb because wellness matters. So does this plant, which I just ran into. Our second sponsor this week is American Hartford Gold. If you listen to Dark Horse regularly, then you already know just how incompetent and unstable many of our institutions are becoming. Institution is at its... Nope. Inflation is at its highest level in 40 years. I would say institutions are at their lowest level in, <laughs> in ever. Ever, yes. <laughs> Since hunter-gatherer times. <laughs> yes. Since before institutions, institutions really suck now. Inflation is at its highest level in 40 years. Interest rates are sky high. We are caught between runaway inflation and a recession, and our leaders are increasingly nonsensical. All of this threatens businesses, jobs, and retirement funds. Your money. Finding ways to secure your nest egg and insulate your wealth is more important than ever, and adding precious metals to your assets is a great way to stabilize your investments and protect yourself financially. American Hartford Gold is a precious metals dealer that can help you do just that. American Hartford Gold helps individuals and families protect their wealth by diversifying with precious metals. They make it simple and easy to protect your savings and retirement accounts with physical gold and silver. With one short phone call, they can have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or inside your IRA or 401k. They are the highest rated firm in the country with an A-plus rating from the Better Business Bureau and thousands of satisfied clients. And if you call them right now, they will give you up to $5,000 of free silver on your first qualifying order. Contact American Hartford Gold today by visiting the link in the episode description below or call 866-828-1117. That's 866, start again, that's 866-828-1117 or text DARKHORSE to 998899 once more. That's to reach American Hartford Gold, 866-828-1117, or text Dark Horse to 998899. And the dog is snoring. The dog is snoring. We the dog is not interested in precious metals because we've got that taken care of before. Because they are not tasty. <laughs> um, yes, I, I, for some reason, fear I'm about to have a, a flare-up of dyslexia. We will see if I can get through this ad before that happens. Our final sponsor this week is MD Hearing Aid. MD Hearing Aid makes high-quality, simple, and effective hearing aids for a tiny fraction of what most hearing aids cost, helping bring audio clarity and capacity to people who might not otherwise be able to afford it. While we don't have need for hearing aids, we have a friend who does, and we asked her to assess MD Hearing Aid's newest product carefully and honestly. She did, and her latest testimonial is at the end of this ad. MD Hearing Aid was founded by an ENT surgeon who made it his mission to develop quality hearing aids that anyone could afford. He kept the price low by simplifying the product, removing several rarely needed components, and he made a product that aims to fit so well no one will know you're wearing it. Other features include rechargeable batteries that last up to 30 hours, water resistance in up to three feet of water, and their Volt Plus uh, water in their Volt Plus model. See, there it was, but it's back under control. Not too bad. Not too bad so yeah. far. You do not need a prescription to get one. MD Hearing Aid has cut out the middleman, so you buy your hearing aid directly from the source. 
where audiologists and licensed hearing specialists are available seven days a week. Here's the newest testimonial from our friend who has substantial hearing loss and who relies on hearing aids. We asked her to try this product, product and here's what she said. Quote, I tested the NEO, N-E-O, the new in-ear canal hearing aids offered by MD Hearing Aid. I was a bit skeptical since I'd never liked the in-ear canal models, preferring the stability of the over-the-ear sets. They were surprisingly comfortable and stable, staying put without coming loose even when I wore them to exercise. I tried the NEO in several situations, uh, from Discord voice chat to an in-person conversation in a room with a white noise generator, and they passed every test. It is true they don't have the individual audio programming and smartphone integration of my usual hearing aids, but they have everything else for less than 5% the price. They provided an absolutely stunning level of quality for pennies on the dollar. MD Hearing Aid, this is after that quote, MD Hearing Aid is bringing affordable hearing to hundreds of thousands of people who might not otherwise be able to afford high-quality hearing aids. So, if you want MD Hearing Aid's smallest hearing aid yet, go to mdhearingaid.com and use the promo code DARKHORSE to get their new buy one, get one deal. A pair of hearing aids costs just $149.99. Plus, Dark Horse listeners receive a free extra charging case, which is a $100 value. So head to mdhearingaid.com and use the promo code DARKHORSE to get their new buy one, get one deal, a pair of hearing aids for only $149.99. So um, let's jump right in. We have a number of things to talk about today. And uh, for the first section, I want to return to a topic that we spent some time on last week, the, the topic that we ended on last week, which was that I had, um, and I will try to find the camera this time, um, I had talked extensively about this book, Where There Is No Doctor, uh, a village healthcare handbook. This is our copy from, uh, this is a second uh, printing of the second edition. So this, it happens to be from 1994, but it's a 1992 edition of this book, which was originally published in Spanish in uh, the 70s. And uh, the first edition in English was in the 70s. And I talked a fair bit about what, um, what an extraordinary resource this is. Uh, I had it with me at least on one of my uh, extended field seasons in Madagascar, where there in fact was no doctor. And uh, it is, you know, it, it provides it provides insight, information, and an ability to quickly generate skills, plus an ability to know sort of what should be in your medical kit, what drugs should you have on hand if you're going to be in remote places, or if you are specifically. Um, in a remote village, um, either you know, living there because that is where you live or trying to do healthcare or other kind of social work um, um, with people who have lived there all of their lives. And one of the things I said last week was, it turns out there's a new edition published in 2022. I do not know how it has changed. Well, um, that new edition has since arrived. This is the 20, 20, 2022 edition. These look um, very, very similar, right? <clears throat> one of them is clearly uh, rather well more loved. You can't maybe tell that on the camera here, but it's been through, well, it's been to Madagascar and back and other places uh, and through many moves. And this is, this 2022 edition is a brand new, brand new book. So I did not compare every single thing in both of these books, of course, um, but they did make it easy to compare because the pagination is the same between the two editions and the table of contents um, are, are mostly the same. And so I was able to kind of, you know, go in and spot check various things and I want to report out on what on what I find, uh, because I think this is um, a relatively rare opportunity to directly compare uh, two two books, uh, uh, um, 
a text that we relied on 30 years ago, 31 years ago, which has come out with a new edition in a field, that is to say medicine, uh, that has of course changed rather dramatically, um, or at least very obviously, uh, at least in the last few years. And so I've got some some categories of things to, to say, and you can interrupt any time because this is sort of, um, it, it goes on and on and on, and you know at some point I'll stop. But um, I basically I want to talk about some good things that have not changed at all between the two editions. I'm going to talk about the rare mistake from the earlier edition that I found that's not corrected in the modern one, some changes that are suggestive of what I call creeping stupidity in the medical field, and then I want to talk about how their uh, recommendations on vaccinations have changed finally, and that's the longest part of the discussion because, as far as I find, it's actually the the place in the book that has changed the most, which is what I was concerned about when I was talking about the 1992 edition last week, and it turns out that those concerns were were warranted. Okay, so first, uh, some good things that have not changed at all, that are identical between the two editions, and and this will give you a sense, a, an even greater sense than the conversation we had last week, of what's what kind of things are in this book. Um, in 1992, uh, where there is no doctor, recommended uh, that babies be exclusively breastfed for, for the first six, for the first four months of the life. And in 2022, they've actually increased that and recommend that babies be exclusively breastfed for six months, the first six months of life. And uh, and then there are uh, th that comes up multiple times throughout the book. And in each case, uh, both editions are very firm on the idea that, you know, bre breast is best. Now, this is, you know, the, the 2022 edition may have coexisted with this um, cryptically dangerous fed is best paradigm that we've talked about uh, on Dark Horse before, but breast is best is still what they're going with, and that makes the best sense for mothers, for babies, for, for people. Um, in both editions, they say, and they're relatively staunch about this, they say for most medicines, no medicine, I'm sorry, for most sicknesses, no medicine is needed. Great. They want, they want you to use your own body, drink Drink a lot of water, eat good food, have a uh, clean latrine that is maintained, uh, get good sleep, get good exercise, and that is the way um, to health, to maintaining health, and that is, those are also the things that you should use to get back to health. Um, they say in the Healing Without Medicines chapter, people will get well from most sicknesses, including the common cold and flu by themselves without need for medicines. And they say, even in a case of more serious illness, when a medicine may be needed, it is the body that most overcome the disease. The medicine only helps. Cleanliness, rest, nutritious food, and lots of water are still very important. So again, this is, uh, this is consistent between the two. And it is perfectly consistent with evolutionary logic. The exactly. body is designed to stabilize itself, and when it has become unstabilized, there are many mechanisms that will cause it to return Exactly. To health. And so, you know, the lesson for, frankly, uh, civilization ought to be do what you can to disrupt those normal processes that are so well built and so difficult to understand because yes. taking a process and uh, disrupting it and then correcting for the disruption is always harder than just simply not disrupting. Right. Maintain homeostasis when you can. Uh get ahead of processes that could become positive feedback processes, runaway processes that will send more and more of your systems more and more out of out of sync and out of health, which then may require medicines, and then the medicines may require more medicines to deal with the side effects of the first, et cetera, et cetera. Right? 
Yeah, I was also just going to say that the extrapolation from that, and I don't think the book is going to deal as much with that, but the obvious extrapolation is that we ought to treat um, the developmental period with spectacular care, disrupted minimally. Well, and I, you know, they don't use that language, um, but there is a lot in in this book, and and there is a companion book which we don't have. Um, specifically for um, women around childbirth and such. But there is a lot in here about the different ways that we should be treating children and pregnant women and, and, and newborns, uh, which is suggestive of that being understood without it being explicit. That the earlier in development you are, the more fragile you are, the more easily disrupted systems are, and the less likely if you disrupt them early, you are to have healthy systems later on. And I would just... Um add to this, I know you have lots of places to go, but that in some sense, although a developmental environment could be upgraded and it could be made to fit better with the adult environment that the person is developing to live in, you are far better with a developmental environment that is coherent and worked from 500 years ago than you are from some novel combination of things that have not yet passed the test of time. That's right. So, you know, an Amish childhood would not leave a child perfectly well-adjusted for the modern world, but it would certainly not mess them up in the same way that um, we seem to be doing across the board by giving them dozens of new inputs, which can't their effect can't be tracked because it's too noisy when you have that much complexity. Right. Oh, you know, my, my child, my child is, is suffering. Well, um, you started off with formula, and um, they were sleeping on a mattress that was off-gassing, um, all sorts of things the child never should have been breathing. You've been kept inside. The child's been kept inside out of the sun, out of some misguided attempt to um, to protect him from skin cancer when what he needed was sun. He doesn't move his body because he's in front of a screen all the time. Once he was off formula, he's drinking Coke and eating Fritos. Uh, you know, it on and on and on goes. Like, how how do you separate? Um, how how do you point to any one of those as the culprit? Even though I think everything that I just named is actually now completely understood to be contributing to some of the health problems that so many of us are experiencing. Yeah, and on top, and, of and that's that, a tiny part fraction of the list. On top of that, uh, parents are being instructed to override the natural impulse that would exist for evolutionary reasons to correct their child's wrong thinking. Ah, they are now being induced to uh, reinforce a child's uh, incorrect thinking about, for example, their own sex. And um, there is no telling what happens. You know, should we expect more of this in the future? Of course you should, because you're putting bad data into the people's heads. You know, instead of saying, no, honey, you're not a girl, right? We are saying, oh, geez, are you? You know, I had no idea. The obstetrician told me exactly the opposite. And um, anyway, that... Uh, informational so chaos is... But that, that's outside the purview of the book, right? This this book is not primarily about um, parenting outside of distinctly medical um, medical cases, although obviously what you're talking about has, has, <laughs> has steamrolled into medical space. Uh, but a few more things between the two editions that, uh, that aren't changed and that are quite terrific. I read last week uh, from chapter six, the right and wrong uses of modern medicines um, with, you know, things like there is some danger in the use of any medicine to be helpful. Medicine must be used correctly. All of this is unchanged between the two editions. Uh, In chapter nine, I also read instructions and precautions for injections, including it is more dangerous to inject medicine than to take it by mouth. Also unchanged between the two editions. 
And um, there is, for instance, and I'm not going to show it, it's a, it's a little graphic, but there's a flowchart of how to care for a person with acute diarrhea. And um, that sounds like something you don't want to think about. Well, you don't want to think about it until it's right in front of you, right? It's clear. It's easy to interpret. It's identical in both editions. They're not changing things. Uh, you know, there's a whole lot between these two editions that are, in fact, the same, which is terrific. Well, in fact, I would just point out that obviously a book that is based on the idea of what you should do in the absence of the latest medical technology and, and uh, the institutions that deliver it should change very slowly. Yes, well, as we shall see, some of the things that should not have changed changed rather dramatically. So um, I found, I think it's just one, really, the, what I'm calling the rare mistake from the earlier edition that's not corrected in 2022. Uh, so if you would show uh, the first picture now, Zach, this is from page 110, uh, in which they're talking about how to uh, make sure that your child is well-nourished. Add high-energy helper foods. This, be, this section begins by saying, you know, most, most cultures have a dominant, basically, starch. You know, it's going to be potato or quinoa or cassava or manioc. You know, it's going to be some rice uh, that, um, that is the main thing, um, but that very often that's not going to be enough, they argue. And so they say, add high-energy helper foods such as oils and sugar or honey to the main food. It is best to add vegetable oil or foods containing oils, nuts, ground nuts, peanuts, or seeds, especially pumpkin or sesame seeds. And on the bottom right of this image that I'm showing you here, and this is just a picture I took from, I don't remember which one of these it was, but it's identical in the two editions. Um, if your child's belly fills up before her energy needs are met, the child will become thin and weak. To meet her energy needs, a child would need to eat this much boiled rice. And there's a big pile on, on the leaf in front of her. But she needs only this much rice when some vegetable oil is mixed in. Well, it's possible that the way that vegetable oils were being made in 1992 weren't quite the same as uh, how they're being made now. But uh, in general, vegetable oil sounds like a healthy alternative to, you know, things like butter and, uh, and lard, and it's quite the opposite. So especially now, and I suspect even back 30 years ago, but for sure now, Almost all of the oils that you will get and that are used in basically, you know, any time that you aren't in control of the oil you're using are seed oils. And they are being created through processes that leave so much toxicity in the oils themselves. This is the opposite of a healthy food. You should not be adding vegetable oil to your child's rice uh, to increase the nutritional content. That's a terrible idea. Lard, maybe, coconut oil, ghee, butter, uh, any number of um, animal animal um, fats or, you know, something like olive oil or um, avocado oil or coconut oil. But, um, you know, the stuff that's passing for vegetable oil, safflower, sunflower, canola, grapeseed, uh, not, not good at all. And that's just, that's an error that is maintained between the two editions. And I, I think, as I said, the only one. So let's, let's explore that a little bit. First of all, in the kinds of places where this book is more useful, were you to go into a local shop and find vegetable oil, it would almost certainly be something like uh, sunflower, canola, canola. Would be it's going to be cheap and highly industrialized. Right, um, exactly. Oil. It's going to be exactly the, the culprit oils. And indeed, I mean, if I'm thinking about in Madagascar, in, 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 in Maransetra, the town nearest um, where I did most of my research, um, they were often the oils were in these giant oil drums. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Right. And then you bring in like an uh, like an empty water bottle, like a, 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 like a, a one of these crinkly plastic water bottles that you you know bought at the store. You drank the water and they basically dump it into the oil bin, the, the, the oil can, this big drum of 
God knows what yep. vegetable oil. And that's, that's your cooking oil. So I have, I never had, and that was, you know, that was in the nineties that we were doing that. I never had any sense that that was actually going to be good for you. Yeah. It's, it's troubling from multiple different uh, levels. And I would just point out that, you know, that, oh, it's a big drum of something thing gets even worse for the transportation of some of these things they are transported in these big ships. And, you right. know, the, uh, the controls that actually render that safe are uh, certainly not sufficient. Right. Um, but the, you know, the distinction between, let's say, olive and uh, avocado oil, which you're almost certain not to be able to find in one of these little shops sure. um, because they're, uh, you know, luxury mm-hmm. goods, uh, and canola or safflower or whatever you are going to be able to find has to do with, you know, the subtle distinction that in the case of those two oils that are good, right, which seem like they would be seed oils, aren't seed oils because it's not the seed from which the oil is extracted. These are- It's the fruit. It's the fatty fruit. Olives and avocados have very fatty fruits, and it's the fruits of the olives and the fruits of the avocado with which the oils are being made. Yeah. And the same thing. Um, actually, it's it's different. I don't know why it's different for coconut, coconut oil. Coconut is yeah. the exception. Yeah. yeah. And why it's an exception, I don't exactly know either. But, right. um, but in any case, the- you know, the diagram is referring to something accurate. Mm-hmm. There's a correct piece of logic there, which There's is There's an undernutrition it, problem for many developing world children. Right. A high volume starchy food may have, you know, uh, sufficient nutrition in one regard, but it's so high volume that the point is the net nutrition that one gets out of a meal may be below the necessary threshold. Mm-hmm. Um, but what you do to correct it is uh, not wise in the mm-hmm. case of the way that piece of advice would be interpreted by somebody given what's locally likely to be available. Well, and I'm thinking, uh, you know, my experience and our experience as well um, in northeastern Madagascar, a very remote part of an already very remote uh, island nation in the western part of the Indian Ocean, uh, where rice is the food. People eat rice three times a day, often only rice, Uh, you know, enough so that the, you know, the national drink is burnt rice water. And it's, it's you know, and you know when when you meet someone on the street, one of the formal exchanges is how many bowls of rice have you eaten today, uh, and the higher the number, sort of the greater indicator of wealth that you have. I don't know if that is still the case, but it was back in the '90s. And in um, in the particular spot where I was doing my research, I was on the coast, of course, because I was on a little island right off the coast of of northeastern Madagascar. And there are a lot of fishermen in these little pirogues, these little you know cut up you know wooden wooden boats that they dug were paddling, canoes. dug out canoes. And they would go out fishing for some number of days at a time before coming back to their families with, with their catch. But it being the tropics, fish doesn't save that well. And so, in fact, on the shore of Nozimangabi, the island where I was working and on a few other places too, there were these fisher camps uh, where they would uh, dry and smoke the fish. And... The the two conservation agents who were on the island one of the years that I was um, that I was there um, got very excited when a fisherman would pull up and you know offer to sell some of some of their smoked fish to to us uh, because we would we would eat together it would be you know them and me and my field assistant or the year that you were there with me um, the five of us a diff- you know different field assistant and you and me and our, and the two conservation agents and occasionally a couple of Malagasy uh, wild pig researchers um, as well. Um, it was you know a small group, tiny island, 
And uh, the first time that these Malagasy fishermen pulled up, I thought, oh, thank God, like, is we're going to have something besides rice, right? <clears throat> and, you know, we can, we can, we can have some fish. Um, but what is done is the fish is smoked because unless you eat the fish the same day you catch it, it goes bad in this tropical climate. The fish is smoked, but you don't then eat the smoked, effectively salted dried fish. No, you boil it into water and you pour the reconstituted, reconstituted smoked dried fish broth onto the rice and you eat the rice that now tastes a little bit of fish. And to a Western palate, to a privileged Western palate, it's not good. <laughs> it's not good. But it is patently nourishing. Yeah. Right? It is patently more nourishing for you than just the bowl of rice that you would otherwise be eating. And while I never came to think it was delicious, I did come to associate uh, those moments when we managed to acquire some of this smoked dried fish. Uh, and then, um, you know, having watched what the Malagasy do, like, okay, this is what we do. We make the broth out of it and we pour it on the rice. Like, well, okay, I'm, I'm fed. I am fed. When in Rome. When in Rome, right? Yep. Uh, so... That was the rare mistake from the earlier edition uh, that is not corrected in 2022. Uh, some changes between the two editions that suggest what I'm calling creeping stupidity. Uh, in, let's see here, in the 1992 edition on page 126, there's nothing to show here because I didn't pull it up. We have a section um, in a chapter. Let's see, I can't remember what the chapter is called. The chapter is basically about what you should be eating um, and how to stay healthy. And um, there's a section called fat people. To be fat, to be very fat is not healthy. It begins, okay? Uh, that same section in the 2022 edition, you want to guess? What's the same section called in 2022? <laughs> same um, section. Is, it's, it's not terrible. Like it's, it's, It didn't go full stupid. But right. It's creeping stupidity, I think. Right. That same section, same page. Like Again, they really did make it easy to compare editions here. Um, in the 2022 edition are called people who are too heavy. To be very fat is not healthy. Very heavy people are more likely to get high blood pressure, etc. So they didn't actually change any of the conclusions. They just took out the word fat. Yeah, actually, that one... Okay, so um, in 1992, there was a section on uh, fertility in which they wrote, men and women who are not able to have children, et cetera, et cetera. And they changed that phrase in 2022 to people who are not able to have children. Some okay. of whom are men and women. Well, no, actually in this case. So, oh, there's intersex people. Like, you know what? Intersex people are generally not going to have an easy time having children. And if they are, then they are doing so as a man or a woman. So it's men and women who have children, not some third imaginary sex, right? So that's just creepingly stupid, actually. Uh, words like sterility have been removed. I don't know why. They're talking about sterility and they just like use different words now. And sex is often disappeared, but not always, even in chapters entirely about reproduction. So, for instance, in 1992, men are sometimes unable to make women pregnant because they have fewer sperms than usual. 2022. A person may make fewer sperm than is normal and so be unable to make someone pregnant. Why? Like, just, just why do it? All the chapters on sex, on pregnancy, on childbirth, on family planning, and there are a lot of them in here, have removed some mention of male and female in places, but they've left in others. So it's just a mess. It's just going to be more confusing to people who are trying to use this as an actual manual for, you know, village healthcare. It's, it's, it's silly, and it's actually potentially 
bordering on dangerous because you know no one who lives in a village who's dealing with fertility issues or childbirth issues or or any of this is actually confused about who it is who gets pregnant and who it is who, who has the sperm like they're just not confused about it all right this is interesting because yeah. you can imagine that in whatever context it is that the revision was decided upon the yeah. details of what would be changed that a conversation probably unfolded where well if we adjust the language so that it can't get us in trouble it doesn't actually anybody who reads it is going to know what it means so but they didn't do it completely well but never mind that let's say they did but they didn't doesn't matter let's say they did okay <laughs> If they changed everything so that nobody who disbelieves in two sexes would be offended, right? But anybody who did believe two sexes would know exactly what was being said. Then you could argue that the meaning hadn't been lost. However, especially in places where such a book might find itself, mm -hmm. the idea that the language is going to appear to dance around a fiction that's actually biologically settled and not complex, yeah. right? is dangerous. And I want to tell a little anecdote. Um, as I've mentioned before, my first research gig was in Jamaica. Yes. And it was a fascinating experience. I lived uh, in a little town, didn't have, there was not even a phone line into the town. And I and was- before cell phones. It was before cell phones. I was living with a Jamaican family and I was brought into their world and I actually got to see how their world worked. And I, they took me in as one of their own, which was a lovely and formative experience for me. The children of this extended clan, so I was in this house that had a yard, but the family was related to a number of other houses. So there were, I don't know, probably 10 kids who followed me around and were interested because I would talk to them about my life, which was very different from theirs. They were very interested to hear what I had to say, and I knew things. I was a science you know, student, and anyway, so they would ask lots and lots of questions. And you were a decent human being and a, and a, and a stranger in a place with uh, with a, a, a closed, tight-knit group, and you were accepted. And so, hey, yeah. talk to the new guy. It was it was yeah. uh, totally, totally cool, except for one incident where um, uh, I was reading, uh, I think it was The Unbearable Lightness of Being. <laughs> yes, <it is. laughs> you were reading Kundra, and okay. okay. I was reading Kundra, okay. and that was fine, but... Um, I got, I think, to the end of the book, and I, I can't remember the book very well, but um, there was a very sad, poignant moment, and I was fending off tears, and the kids were, like, interested to come talk to me, and I did not want to cry in front of the children. And anyway, so I was, like, moving into the bush trying to find a place where I could finish reading this book <laughs> and be done with this. But anyway, um, yeah. But anyway... The, oh. So I got a lot of interesting questions from these kids, and they were very revealing. Some of these questions were brilliant questions that really made you think about things, and some of the questions were the result of the very provincial circumstances that these kids were mm -hmm. living in. And one of the very unfortunate facts of their existence was that the Weekly World News, remember the Weekly World News? Is this like a, a tabloid that would show up in the yeah? Like it was the, a tabloid at, at supermarket checkouts. Used to be, I don't know that it still might still be, but it used to be available at supermarket checkouts. But it was the one, right? The National Enquirer was the one that kind of pretended to be a newspaper and report real stories that were super sensational. Mm -hmm. And the Weekly World News 
was for people who had given up on reality. And it was just the most outlandish stuff, right? Like, you know, woman gives birth to space alien was literally one of these things. Mm -hmm. Somehow, every so often, one of these things would land in this little yeah. piece of Jamaica. Yeah. And it looks like a newspaper. And so... Well, it's news from the United States. Right. They've now, got it going on. How yeah. tragic is yeah. it to have something broadcasting insane nonsense that it's not even clear if it's a joke, mm -hmm. right? Into, you know, backcountry Jamaica where there's nobody to say, yeah, let me explain to you what that newspaper is so you won't take it so damn seriously if you see it. Yeah. Um, so anyway, okay, into that milieu, you've got this insane newspaper that finds its way into these kids' hands. And this book also might well be in such a place, right? Oh, right. And so my point is, if this book is skirting around some issue of gender that makes it seem like, oh, even the medical people are, you know, being very careful not to say men and women, mm -hmm. maybe this is real, maybe there are more than two sexes, right? Then the point is it, it reinforces that rather than just saying the damn truth yeah and you know okay there's a truth but it hurt my feelings okay <laughs> see ben shapiro about that right but um so Check anyway in with reality and get back to me or don't right so i guess i guess what i'm comparing was there, was there a particular incident that you that you wanted to relate yeah to? yeah I, I think it was it was actually this question of woman gives birth to space alien mm, and okay. they wanted to know if this had in fact happened it was like, I mean, how would they know that it didn't, right? Yeah. But how, if, let's suppose that I hadn't been there and they hadn't asked anybody who could straighten them out on this issue, you might think, well, I don't know that a woman gave birth to a space alien, but it but did, I did read it once. I did read it, so I have mm -hmm. to leave that possibility open. Well, how much educational so the kid, harm? So the kids, the kids were literate. Were they? Were they reading this? Yeah, or, or, yeah. yeah they were in school. Yeah. And okay. uh, as I've mentioned before, they were bilingual without realizing right. it because right. they spoke patois and English. Yeah. And which made me frustrating to them because. But, it, but they thought they only spoke one language. Right. They thought it was one thing because yeah. they moved seamlessly between them, and I spoke English very well, and struggled the whole time with Patois. Mm -hmm. And so when they would say things to me in Patois and I would not understand them, they would be like, What are you, dumb? Are you, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> yeah. stop that. You know what we're saying. And so anyway, it was, it was a fascinating experience. But if you compare the high-minded, uh, you know, discussion at the publisher surrounded by whiteboards around the big laminate, a conference table in which they decided what to delicately change in some way that left the meaning there for whoever wanted to find it. Yeah. And then the harm done where this book finds itself into the hands of somebody who just wants to know what the hell is going on. And the book implies by being very strange with language that men and women, are, that's not, those categories aren't as good as we once thought. Yeah. And some fool has told them the same thing. Right, that's that's a tragedy. It need, the book just needs to be straightforward. It's yes. a medical book designed to tell yes. you what to do in the absence of an authority. That's its purpose. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Um, just a couple more examples of some changes that I find suggestive of creeping stupidity, uh, and then we'll talk about the ways that their um, the recommendations around vaccinations have changed. Uh, in their chapter, How to Stay Healthy During Pregnancy, or the section called How to Stay Healthy During Pregnancy in 1992, they say, continue to work and get exercise, but try not to get too tired. In 2022, try to rest more, but also get some exercise. Now, most people probably just 
go right by that and not even notice that there's been a change. The fact that so much in these two editions is unchanged makes it really, really clear that that is a change. And it is a bad change. It is a stupid change. Uh, the idea that now you're basically telling pregnant women that they are, you know, delicate, fragile, precious flowers who are going to do themselves a service uh, by trying not to do too much and definitely not continuing on with their lives. And that's actually, in all but a few cases, going to result in worse outcomes. Uh, you know, the, the less fit you are as you go into childbirth, uh, the more likely you are to have complications. So, you know, try to rest more, but also get some exercise. It flips the, the thing that you should be prioritizing on its head. Now, I could see... I could see a possibly feminist argument for, for getting rid of the first framing, which was continue to work and get exercise, but try not to get too tired. You know, continue to work and get exercise. Definitely, you know, get down there and scrub the floors because that's your job, woman. I don't read it that way at all. And frankly, I think that the, that the move away from encouraging women to continue to do what they do while they are pregnant until they can't anymore, because there does become a point where just like, just get this out of me. I'm just, I'm done here. Um, it's, it's, anti-feminist actually this is this is this is a dangerous thing uh which we see in our culture moving women away from being you know we were moving in the right direction of you know what no you're different men and women are different and there's going to be different constraints and different possibilities and you can try for anything you want and also if you if you are going to get pregnant and have a child there are going to be limitations on what you can do but don't limit yourself on the voice of an authority from outside. Listen to your own body. Listen, you know, listen to your kinfolk. Like listen to your mother and your sisters and your midwife and your doula and you know, all of these people and say, you know what? I feel like I feel like I should be walking right now. Then go walk. Like that's what you should be doing. Not taking a book that is decided, you know what? Try to rest more. Um, but also get some exercise. It feels like it flips which should actually be being done on its yeah, head. Yeah, it actually sounds conservative, but it's radical. Yeah. Right? It, yeah. And it flies in the face. I mean, and this is really, frankly, a problem for medicine, as it is currently understood. It flies in the face of obvious evolutionary logic. Yeah. Right? Yes. The answer Again. is, to the extent that you should be limited by pregnancy and you should alter what you're doing, you're probably programmed to know it, especially with respect to activity. Right. right. It's one thing with respect to a modern food that your ancestors may not have encountered and therefore you might be sensitive to something and you wouldn't have a detector for it or whatever. But with respect to something that every single human female ancestor did while pregnant up until five minutes ago, the answer is you probably have an internal guide to mm -hmm. how far you can push it. Yep. And Listen to that. Listen to that. And so, you know, I guess what I'm... <clears throat> Uh, what I'm getting from this is there's a lot of stuff in medicine that instead of taking the um, do not disrupt that which works, that that should, you know, that's like above even the Hippocratic Oath, mm -hmm. right? It's like the central principle. Don't disrupt something that works, right? Just because you think you know how to make it better because you're not going to make it better, Yeah, right? don't make the mistake of Chesterton's fence. Right. So as far as things that aren't working, what you should, should you do? You should try to restore the conditions in which the body's natural ability to fix this thing functions to the extent possible, right? And then there comes a point at which you don't have a choice, right? You've got a tumor for whatever reason. Cutting mm -hmm. it out of you is yep. the mechanism. Using antibiotics to prevent infection at the site all makes sense. But the basic point is there should be a strong bias in the direction of 
doing what made sense yes. uh, in ancestral times, not disrupting those patterns as much as you can avoid disrupting them, being especially cautious about development, um, intervening as little as possible, as being as sparing as possible. And if it should show up anywhere, it's in this book. Yeah. And it is here in this book well, in some ways, but that, it's that degrading. Bias, yes, that bias is strong and exists in this book in a, in a good way, but it is disappearing a little bit. And and there's one notable exception, which I'm about to get to, which is uh, which is with regard to vaccines. Um, but just one more example from their section called How to Stay Healthy During Pregnancy. In the 1992 edition, they say, avoid taking medicines if at all possible. Full stop. That's that's the advice. In 2022, they say, they say avoid taking medicines, and they take out the if at all possible. And then later in that same little bullet point, they say, get up to date on vaccinations and tested for HIV. And the increasing recommendation uh, for women who are pregnant to be getting vaccinations is concerning to me. And I have not seen, I don't know if it exists, a good history of what recommendations have been made when. I have increasingly been hearing, in fact, just this week, um, we have a friend who's pregnant who asked me, I uh, said, I've been recommended that I get this thing during pregnancy, uh, this, this vaccine. And, you know, my sense 20 years ago, you know, when, when we were using this 1992 version of this book, long before I was pregnant or thinking about getting pregnant, was like, that's not, that's not when you do that. You go into pregnancy healthy and you don't put new adjuvants and introduce new possible pathogens into you at that point. Like, that's not, that's not what you do. No, it... And the fact is, it speaks to the same hubris, right? What are the chances that medicine understands the placenta well enough to know how it is going to react to a vaccinated mother, right? right? I mean, A, I yeah. would just point out, the uh, developing fetus is spectacularly well insulated from pathogens by a very ancient mechanism, right? Right. So the question is, okay, is the mother more vulnerable during this period? Is the mother's illness a greater threat to the uh, growing infant than the novelty of the intervention? Right? These are complex questions. And the idea that medicine has looked at them carefully, studied them, figured out the answers, and it turns out that a cost-benefit analysis makes it uh, better to vaccinate a pregnant woman than to hold off— I don't believe it. No, I don't, I don't, I don't believe, believe it, it either. Yeah. And I think um, there, is a, there is a larger burden on a pregnant woman uh, or a woman or a family with a newborn uh, to work harder to uh, not be exposed to certain pathogens. And it can feel constraining and it can feel unfair if what you thought was every human should have access to exactly the same choices and decisions about how to spend every moment of their time as every other human. Well, that's not true. Like if, if, if that's your sense of why it's unfair, then, you're, then you've just been you know, betrayed by reality and there's nothing to be done about it. Uh, so you know, if, if you're pregnant, you should work harder to avoid pathogens than uh, when, when you're not pregnant, just as if you're immunocompromised. Like, I'm sorry that you're immunocompromised and that that puts in a greater burden on you. 
that happened and now it is imp more important for you than some for someone who is not immunocompromised to work very hard to avoid pathogens same thing when you're pregnant same thing when you've got a newborn and um, doing so behaviorally through your own choices of how to move around the world as opposed to imagining that um, you know these reductionist anti-evolutionary non-thinking uh, you know, doctors can deliver unto you a magic shot or a magic pill, and that will solve all of the problems. Those things don't exist. And, you know, I say that, again, as someone who is, um, you know, enthusiastic about vaccines in general and enthusiastic about antibiotics in general, and there's just a lot of moments when neither are the appropriate move. And the 1992 version of this book did a very good job of saying, uh, you know, their you know children should get these recommended vaccinations, and uh, and that will help protect them against these these very debilitating diseases. And what has happened in the 2022 edition on this question is is a little bit shocking. So, before I go there, uh, let us show the second picture, if you will, Zach. So I read from la last week how injections can disable children. And this is the section that I read from that I'm showing now. Um, one out of every three cases of polio is caused by injections, uh, they say in the 1992 section. They specifically say, um, to reduce the chance of paralysis from polio, it is best not to give vaccinations, immunizations, or any other injections when a child has a fever or signs of a cold. This could be a mild polio infection without paralysis. Okay, and show what that same section looks like in 2022, if you will, Zach. That's, That's the third picture. It's exactly the same section, and it's one of the very few sections of the book, which looks very different, although it's in exactly the same, you know, it's the same section. So they've taken out both the image of three three children, three children with polio, one of whom they are attributing to having gotten some kind of an injection. And they've taken out all mention of the fact of vaccinating when you are already sick, vaccinating a child when the child is already sick, potentially causing trouble. They have taken that out. They've removed it. Why? I don't know, but they've taken it out. Well, we have to leave one possibility open here. Mm -hmm. And I think with polio, I mean, I don't know. And I, I, uh, I would like to, to look into it, but the nature, so in the case of one in three cases of polio may actually be vaccine induced, what they're likely talking about is the case of an attenuated vaccine that has a bad interaction with a latent um, infection. They are, so, and not necessarily, they're, they're not specifying actually, um, if I, if I read both the lines and between the lines. Um, they are not restricting uh, in the 1992 edition their claim that uh, one in three or up to one in three polio infections may actually have been caused by an injection. They're not saying that one in three would have been caused by a polio vaccination. They're saying an injection, which is to say that it's possible that a low-level sickness that a child has could be polio. And that sometimes it is in these cases where polio is still endemic and that getting any kind of injection that has any kind of effect like an adjuvant that's wow. going to trigger the immune system um, will cause that polio infection, which the child would have been able to fend off and then be immune to it, to blow up into a lifelong debilitating disease. Yeah, well, if that is the case, if that's really the implication there, then it hints at a very important fact, which you and I have become increasingly focused on as we've thought more and more about the various different technologies involved in vaccines and so-called vaccines, 
Um, but the idea of, hey, some manufacturer needs to get more of a reaction out of the immune system because what it's giving you is very weak T antigenically. Mm -hmm. And so it's going to use an adjuvant to wake up your immune system. How good is it to wake up your immune system? What happens if your immune system is reacting to something else at the same time, which it often is and you may not be aware of? So anyway. So, and when, if you think about it this way, like, okay, should I take, should I take a shot or an oral vaccine, for instance, the purpose of which is to engage my immune system when I am sick with something else, does, would that ever make sense? Right? It, it seems actually kind of clear that that is something that should be a common sense piece of advice. Wait until you feel in perfect health. Wait until, I'm going to make some numbers up, you know, a week, two weeks after the last time you felt in any way sick before you get something on board, before you take something on board, the purpose of which is to inform your immune system and of, of a particular pathogen and aggravate it enough that it hops to right? If your immune system is already responding to a cold or a flu or, God forbid, you know, a low-level polio virus, it's already engaged and now it gets some other injection um, that the purpose of which is in part to get your immune system to kind of, you know, get flustered, get active. If their original numbers are right, that is extraordinary that you know what, this is, and it's, an, it's another reason we're going to get back to like um, Kurt Vandenbosch is like, you do not vaccinate during a, during a pandemic, right? You do not vaccinate against a thing when that thing is circulating, right? Uh, because it's, you, you potentially make it worse because well, there is going to be some ability for some number of people. And we don't at all fully understand why people vary so much, but for any given disease, exposure to that disease is going to result in very different kinds of illness across the population. Yeah. It's also true that to the extent that there is something called a safety test that actually has the capacity to find um, risks, the number of people involved in a safety test who would have been sick with any one of the dozens of things that they might have contracted is going to be tiny. So to the extent that this vaccine and this illness are a bad combination, A, it's almost certain to be missed. B, um, that risk is always there. And therefore the idea of, well, should you take a vaccine? Vaccines are safe. Suppose a vaccine was perfectly safe, which I don't believe they ever are, but a vaccine was perfectly safe, except in people who were sick with something that does circulate. Right. Right. So that some tiny number of people who happen to be sick with something, maybe it's, you know, the first day of their illness with something else, and they don't know that they're sick yet. Right. And they get a vaccine. The point is you're taking that risk inherently when you say, this is a vaccine worth taking. This should be factored into the calculus. What are the chances that some parameter like am I sick with something else is going to change the safety of this vaccine in my particular case on this particular day? If that exists for every vaccine, right, then the point is, oh, well, there's a reason you shouldn't want to have the number of vaccines be arbitrary large in the first place, mm -hmm. even if they were all safe, right? Because the point and, is... And uh, that you shouldn't simply follow a schedule like, well... If he's three months old, he needs to get it, but he's got he's got a cold. Nope. If he's three months old, he's got to get the thing. I'm going to wait until that child is healthy. Right. Or, may, you know, as, and as you also and I... as long as possible. As you and I have talked about, there are lots of things that potentially could have influences on the hazard of, of these sorts of technologies that are simply not discussed, right? Mm -hmm. If myocarditis is a risk, does it matter which arm you're injected in? Probably. Mm -hmm. And therefore, why is that 
something, you know, that is left to the clinician or to the patient to decide, right? Why is that not an issue? If it is true that being sick with something changes the risk that accompanies a particular inoculation, then is there a season in which inoculating is safer? And therefore, should there be inoculation season and no-go season, right? Yeah, maybe pollen season isn't the right season to be inoculating people. Perhaps it isn't. Maybe it's true that vaccines are an incredibly potent weapon against infectious disease, but that they are dangerous enough that what should happen is you should have a blood panel that decides whether or not you appear to be sick with something you don't know about that might affect how safe the thing is. Before getting any inoculations. Right. Mm -hmm. The point is there's a whole landscape of possibilities in between these things are too unsafe to uh, contemplate, and these things are so safe that you are a bad person if you don't get one. Yes, that that binary being, of course, trotted out as anti-vaxxer and vaxxer. Right. And neither of those positions make sense. Anti-vaxxer and decent person, which is not a dichotomy. <laughs> right. Okay, so let us walk through how specifically the recommendations for childhood vaccines changed between these two editions. You can show my uh, my screen here, Zach. I just, I created a document in which I went through the two books and compared the recommendations. And I walked through the recommendations last week uh, from the 1992 edition. This is all you know, easily found, page 147. Um, in 1992, there were four vaccines recommended. They've got six here for, for young children. Um, they got DPT, which is diphtheria, whooping cough, and tetanus, polio, uh, BCG for tuberculosis, measles, just the single measles shot. Uh, and then those are those are the early childhood vaccines, the, the 1992 edition of Where There Is No Doctor Recommended. And then they've got tetanus for older children, uh, and which incidentally in 2022 here you see that that's just kind of wrapped up into number one. So they've got nine recommendations, but they've actually cheated by combining one and five from before because the T in the DPT shot is a tetanus shot. Uh, so, you know, consistently... Uh, where there is no doctor says, you know, tetanus is the thing that you really have to worry about and you really want to be protected from um, polio, tuberculosis, measles, um, and uh, smallpox being the others. Smallpox, they said, and I didn't actually catch this when I was talking about it last week, um, they mentioned in the 1992 edition, but they said the disease has been eradicated, so you don't need this anymore. So they actually had five recommended vaccines in um, in... In 1992, for young children, and in 2022, they still have DPT and polio and BCG for tuberculosis and measles, although now they say maybe it should also be, maybe instead of measles, it should be the MMR shot, um, which is the triple measles, mumps, and rubella. And then they add a whole bunch more. So in 2022, we've got hep B, uh, which, and I'm just, I've got in quotes here what the uh, what the 2022 edition says about either the disease or the pathogen that is identified as being dealt with by the vaccine is what it does. So hep B is described in the 2022 edition of where there is no doctor as a serious liver disease. And they say three or four shots simultaneous with DBT. Hib, which is hemophilus influenza type B, um, which quote causes meningitis and pneumonia, Three to four shots, again, simultaneous with DPT plus a booster. You've got number seven here, pneumococcal conjugate against pneumonia. Three shots, again, simultaneous with DPT. Got rotavirus, uh, which is apparently, quote, against a diarrhea disease that can kill young children. That's an oral vaccine like the polio vaccine. 
and then HPV, which they don't specify, but I believe they're not giving that to young children anywhere. So I gave them the benefit of the doubt here and did not put that into the young children uh, recommendations. This is human papillomavirus, which, quote, causes cervical cancer and some other cancers. Uh, and I counted up the shots, too. And uh, in 1992, where there was no doctor recommended for young children, five shots plus oral polio vaccine and three additional shots for older children in the form of the tetanus shot, and in the 2022 edition, they're recommending 15 to 17 shots, depending, plus oral polio and oral rotavirus, and for older children, an additional five to six shots. That's a big change. And when I go looking just a little bit at what, how effective these new vaccines are, whether or not they are actually doing what they're claiming to do, whether or not they are definitely necessary, all the places that they are being advocated for, whether or not having all of these at once, which is probably more about compliance than about health, right? Now, if you're a rural uh, healthcare worker and you've got someone with a baby and you are convinced that they absolutely need for the health of their baby to get them this full retinue of vaccinations, it is going to be much harder to get that mother with her young baby and she may have other babies at home, other children at home, and she's got a lot of things going on. It's going to be harder to get her to come in 15 to 17 times than it is to get her to come in three, four, five times, right? So if you have everything on the same schedule as the original DPT vaccine, the diphtheria, pertussis, and tetanus vaccine, and you're taking the hep B shot at the same time, and the hib shot, and the pneumococcal conjugate shot, and the rotavirus oral vaccine all at the same time, well, most of these vaccines have adjuvants in them, don't they? And so you're just ramping up that immune system of that young child, in some cases so young that they are, if you've taken the other advice in this otherwise excellent book um, completely, that child is still only and exclusively breastfed. That child is still being protected uh, largely by the breast milk of their mother and receiving immune information from their mother. There is a lot to wonder about what has changed in these recommendations. And this is not a match for the childhood vaccination schedule in the US. Indeed, the childhood vaccination schedule in the US is, is more than this. Uh, but I don't, I have not yet heard or read or thought of an explanation for an increase in the childhood vaccination schedule this extreme that makes evolutionary or medical sense. Yes, and the mechanism for knowing is available to us and um, does not appear to be deployed as a rationale, right? Mm -hmm. An all-cause mortality benefit of both the individual vaccines and, more importantly, the schedule as a whole, yeah. right? If you adhere to this schedule, are you better off in terms of how long you're going to live than if you didn't, right? That's an important question because, as you point out, let's say you have a shot and let's say that it was tested in isolation because, of course, it would be, and it has the correct amount of adjuvant, if there is such a thing, for inducing the correct amount of response in the immune system to produce the correct uh, uh, reactivity. Mm -hmm. Okay, now you give somebody multiple shots at once. Okay, well, probably if the correct amount of adjuvant was some quantity that was activating enough of the immune system, 
then really you only need the adjuvant from one shot because the activated immune system from that one shot is sufficient to activate the immune system for the antigens in the other shots. So the idea- unless, I mean, unless the argument is, oh, actually you need, you need that uh, because you need the immune system responding to you know, Hib and to DPT and to all of these things, in which case that's an argument against taking the shots at the same time. Yeah, right, right exactly. And so I, I guess let's put it this way. You and I, like so many others, bought the story surrounding vaccines. And, you know, I believe that the story, the Jenner story about smallpox and cowpox is a very powerful story that Mm -hmm. talks about a very potent mechanism for actually reducing infectious disease. We are believers in the idea of vaccination. But the radical program in which we take many diseases <laughs> and vaccinate a young person from them, effectively sending that person's immune system the message that they are in this environment full of these pathogens, just attacking them you know, at an incredible rate, yep. right? Is that safe? Nobody knows. Yeah. Could we find out? We sure could, but there's a question. Is the explosion in the vaccine schedule driven by are having developed vaccines that are in isolation worthwhile? Are they still worthwhile in conjunction? Or is this motivated by shareholder value Mm -hmm. and the fact that standards of care can be used to get doses of things administered to people and what happens to those people is actually quite secondary? Yes, I I wonder very much the same thing. So uh, a couple more things here uh, with regard to changes in this again, mostly excellent book, uh, where there is no doctor between the 1992 and the 2022 edition, at the very beginning of the 20 of the 19, excuse me, of the 2022 edition, there was in the 1992 edition, a section on thanks, a whole page of, of gratitude, basically acknowledgements. That's gone in the 2022 edition. Instead, we have an entire page devoted to COVID, COVID COVID-19. Yeah, it makes me feel that way too. Mm. Um, it it has some things here that are true and accurate descriptors of what we think we know about COVID. Um, but it also says, uh, it says a lot. Um, vaccination. There are several vaccines for COVID-19. All prevent serious illness or death and all are safe. The sooner you get vaccinated with any of them, the sooner you will be protected and the sooner the disease will stop spreading. After six to eight months, you will also need to get a vaccine booster injection to strengthen your resistance to COVID-19. Prevention against COVID-19. Getting vaccinated is the best way to prevent COVID-19 infection. Until vaccines are available to everyone, you could take steps to protect yourself and others. And then they direct the interested reader to a lot of online content. I'm gonna share just a little bit of that, that they, that they have created, that Hesperian, the publisher, has created uh, with regard wait, to- Wait, wait, before you do. Again, nothing in that advice is risk stratified for age or health status. Now there is some risk stratification in some of the stuff online. They got a lot of stuff online, okay? And I Where there is no doctor, it. but you definitely have access to online, I guess, if you wanna <laughs> find out about the risk stratification. <laughs> right, good point. 
Okay, so let us uh, show my screen, if you will, here, Zach. This is a PDF uh, that I pulled directly from online. I'll link to um, I'll link to these uh, these two documents in the show notes. This is Hesperian Health Guides, which again is the publisher of this book, COVID nineteen vaccines. There are now several vaccines for COVID nineteen. Uh, oh, actually, I think this is just exactly the same as the section I just read. They're all safe. It's all good. Just do it, right? Uh, vaccines are safe and effective. They say vaccines work. You and many people you know have been safely vaccinated against many illnesses. Because of vaccines, some illnesses that used to harm or even kill people, such as polio and smallpox, are now rare or have disappeared completely. Here we have the same trick we've been talking about, basically since we began Dark Horse, right? Where they take a category and a word that describes that category, and it's meaningful. And then they say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that word and I'm going to apply it to something else. And I'm going to tell you that if you don't understand, if you don't believe that I am telling you what is true, then you don't believe in the category itself. And that is that is a faint, that is a bait and switch, that is cheating, and that is dangerous. So I'm going to continue reading from this here, Zach. The COVID-19 vaccines were developed so fast, how do we know they are safe? All vaccines are tested to make sure the vaccine is not harmful. Find the best dose, make sure there are no serious side effects, and make sure it is effective. The COVID-19 vaccines have been tested by more than 250,000 people in many different countries, people of different ethnicities with various existing illnesses and of a wide range of ages. <clears throat> After many months, almost no health problems were reported from any of the new vaccines. Huh. That's why the COVID-19 vaccines were approved quickly. No. The vaccines now have been used by millions of people around the world with very few serious side effects reported. Much of the research to develop these vaccines was done before the COVID-19 epidemic began. Outbreaks of other coronaviruses in 2002, SARS, and 2012, MERS, drove the development of new vaccines and vaccine technologies to stop them. This and other research worldwide quickened the development of the COVID-19 vaccines. So, uh... this, this, uh, it's, it's stunning. Like, this is an excellent book. What have they done? What, what has happened? Well... I mean, the number of errors there, and they're subtle, right? They're, There's a lot of subtle. A lot of things that are factually <laughs> true there, right? right? The developmental work on these vaccine platforms may mm -hmm. have followed SARS-1, right? But it doesn't mean that they had a vaccine that was being tested It on... wasn't fast. We already had it in the wings. Wait, you did? How did... What? Hmm. Yeah, no. No, you didn't. And the idea of, you know, very few side effects were reported. Well... Have you looked into VAERS? I mean, you know, the yellow card system? What the hell is going on? But anyway, look, I don't know what to make of that, but it's like a religion yes. managed to insert a page into this yes. book, which indicts the entire book. Because the thing is, um, where there is no doctor, a village healthcare handbook that can kill you if you don't understand risk stratification and uncertainties involving new medical technologies, right? And I just never had the sense about what was in the earlier version of that book at all. Well, but I mean, it is conspicuous. Yeah. There are people, let's call them young men, right? <laughs> okay. Young men who are healthy <laughs> and do experience a significant risk of myocarditis, and I'm telling you, it's going to be other pathologies as well, but we've spotted the myocarditis. We all get that it's there, that it tends to be more a risk for young men who are healthy and also not 
in danger by COVID. The idea that a medical advice book does not say, you know, it's questionable enough that this is a proper thing to do from the point of view of decreasing all-cause mortality for people who are older and do have comorbidities, mm -hmm. but for young people who are healthy, especially men, the idea that there's just a blanket recommendation that they are safe, that there is no mention of the difference in how safe they are depending upon your health status and your age, and there is no mention of the difference of the, in the threat of COVID to you over those things is medical malpractice. So what is malpractice doing in this book? Yeah. So um, there's another, just from the same document here, something I wasn't planning on reading, but who should get the COVID-19 vaccine? Hmm. Everyone should get the COVID-19 vaccine. When there is not enough vaccine for everyone, it makes sense to give the vaccine first to the groups of people most at risk of getting sick. Health workers, workers who jobs bring them into contact, elders, people who have illnesses or disabilities. That's it. It's just about when there's not enough. And separately, they argue that, you know, the you know, one, of, one of the great health care discrepancies of our time is that uh, the developed world countries got the vaccines first. And this is a, a, a terrible, uh, a, a terrible injustice. But I think that's also a tell, mm -hmm. right? The idea that the logic of risk stratification is there because the risk of the disease is stratified and they acknowledge it and there's no mention of it with the vaccines tells you what is this about mm -hmm. uh sounds like it's about demand yes. right to the extent that there's not enough vaccine so there's not enough supply for the demand the point is oh well then we can talk about risk stratification right but to the extent that there's plenty of vaccine it's for everybody and boosters right mm -hmm. the point is that sounds an awful lot like what we're talking about is shareholder value and not about human health yes so the publisher hesperian has a new book coming out hmm. it's called new where there is no doctor i don't know what the relationship of that book is to this book because this 2022 edition is pretty new um i'm thinking maybe it's not the same author i don't know they've got some advanced chapters available online for new where there is no doctor and i just want to share a little bit from their vaccine chapter that they've got available online again for this is the this is the new where there is no doctor as distinguished as distinct from the 2022 edition of where there is no doctor vaccines prevent illness they go through, how do they work, how do they work, how do they work? Vaccinations work. Vaccines are safe. I'm going to talk about a little bit of the other stuff in here, but they make these, again, blanket statements. Vaccines work. Vaccines are safe. This is an eminently gameable position, and with COVID, we saw it gamed. I don't know how often we've been gamed before. Convince everyone that vaccines are a good. I'm convinced. Put anything that you want everyone to take into a category called vaccines, and then behind the scenes, kind of change the definition of vaccines, or maybe don't even worry about it because most people aren't tracking. Once you've called a thing a vaccine, vilify anyone who says, I'm not taking that. I'm not at risk for the disease it prevents against. It doesn't actually prevent against the disease you say it does. It's not safe and you couldn't possibly know it is, so I know you've already lied to me. Any number of reasons that you might not want to take something that they have decided to try to shove down your throat by calling it a vaccine. This, unfortunately, does the same trick. Vaccinations work. Well, I believe 
that I have seen evidence that some vaccinations work. Vaccinations don't work across the board, right? Yeah, it doesn't match either the history of vaccines that have been tested and failed or the vaccines that have been released and recalled. Exactly. Same with vaccines are safe. So, you know, people are better than this, are smarter than this. And when you simply put falsehoods in front of them, they trust less and less. And this, like, this was an amazing resource, and I think largely still is. And again, this this little section is from a different book that's about to come out with an almost identical title. What if my child is sick when vaccinations are scheduled? Remember, so this is the last thing I'll do here, and then I'll get off this topic for now. Um, remember the conversation we just had, and what was in the 1992 version of Where There Is No Doctor, which says, don't, don't give immunizations when your child is sick. Uh, because something like one in three cases of polio may actually have been produced by uh, injections that were given when the child maybe already had a low-lying case of polio that then got you know shot into a really bad territory by the fact of the ter- by the fact of the immunization. Here we have in a not yet released book an advanced chapter online of new where there is no doctor. What if my child is sick when vaccinations are scheduled? Vaccinations can be given to someone with a cold or minor illness. If a child has a serious health problem, the health worker will tell the family if a vaccination should be delayed. When others in the family and the community are vaccinated, it will help prevent sickness in those who cannot receive a vaccine. They seem to be reversing, not just disappearing the previous advice, but now reversing the previous advice. Vaccinations can be given to someone with a cold or minor illness. No, I don't think they should be. No. And if a child has a serious health problem, the health worker will tell the family if a vaccination should be delayed. What are the chances, again, that a health worker in a rural area with a family that has made a long trek and at great expense, personal, monetary, everything, to get to the health clinic is going to say, not today, come back in a week? Because for the most part, that family is not going to come back in a week. Healthcare workers are not going to even, even if they were informed, and increasingly there's less chance of them being informed because now they're getting told things that aren't true, but even if they were informed about the risk of giving immunizations to sick children, they are really unlikely to say, I can't do that now. I can, I can, you know, I can immunize the rest of you, but not, not little Timmy because he's sick right now. Yeah, and you know, going back to our conversation of a few weeks ago, even just saying, you know, Vaccines are safe. Hey, guess what? That's yeah. another violation of Nuremberg right there, exactly. right? Just a casual Ex- violation. Exactly. And I must say, it's a little hard to know what exactly goes into giving such rotten advice. Um, but the uh, I find it sort of despicable that we have people in the first world who know that that sentence can't even be true, mm-hmm. who are dispensing that advice to people in places where they don't have the ability to check it against anything. Right. And uh, anyway, so there's a, I don't know, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's a class issue or whatever other kind of arrogance it might be, but there's something very wrong with dispensing, uh, dispensing unnuanced information where a parent has an absolute right to know the truth as we understand it, which is, maybe at best 
this vaccine is understood to be safe enough that it is worth whatever risk comes with it, mm-hmm. right? But this is just, you know, vaccines are safe. There is no defending that statement. It is not That's a right. true statement. Okay, one more thing. Yeah. Just one more thing here. Um, I don't know, my screen may have blinked it out, but if, out. okay. Uh, this is, again, the, the bottom of this advanced chapter on vaccines um, to be published soon in a book called New, Where There Is No Doctor. The number and type of vaccinations have changed compared to my first child. Why? For some diseases, more than one pharmaceutical company makes a vaccine that is safe and works well. They may have different schedules. So if two countries use a different vaccine brand or the same country changes from one to another, the schedule of injections may change too. Other changes happen when a new vaccine is created or an old one is no longer needed. There's a lot to unpack there. The thing that I want to point out is that presumably I would have assumed that most of the reason for the vaccine um, schedule to change, the childhood vaccine schedule to change, is because we now have vaccines against diseases that we didn't have vaccines against before. And to some degree, like with smallpox and polio, we've actually fully eradicated them. And so you don't need the vaccination anymore, at least um, for, for many, many of us. But that, um, that part of this answer comes last. The bulk of the answer, the majority of the answer here to why does the vaccine schedule look different than it did for my first kid is it's about pharma. Like they just put it right up at the front. It's about the pharmaceutical companies and they're all safe and effective. We know that. And they just sometimes have different schedules. And so maybe your country used to be getting theirs from Merck and now it's getting it from, uh, you know, AstraZeneca. Who can say? But um, it's fine. It's fine. That seems to be sort of the overall, like, don't you worry your pretty little head about it. Uh, it's, you know, yes, yeah, sometimes there's new vaccines, sure, but really it's about the pharmaceutical companies and they got your back. So we're good. Well, look, I hate to have fallen into a well of cynicism and I'm doing my best yeah. to avoid it. But, you know, once you spot this issue of pharma having this deeply perverse incentive, right? Pharma masquerades as wanting to create health, but of course its bottom line is facilitated when there's ill health uh, or threat to health Mm -hmm. that demands um, its products. One thing that is true, you know, I was surprised to see in that little description that the vaccine is no longer needed. Oh, that suggests we've defeated a disease. It doesn't sound very good for demand. So I guess what I would predict. Well, but I mean that that's consistent with um, with smallpox. Like they they the 2022 edition of the original book um, doesn't have smallpox mentioned at all, whereas the 1992 edition mentions it and says actually we, we've done this. We we've been there. We did that. You don't need this anymore. Right. But my prediction then yes. is if what we are seeing is a medical landscape that is actually being driven by. Uh, fiscal considerations inside of pharma, which I increasingly believe is the dominant player, then um, you would imagine that we will stop at any potential to drive um, pathogens to extinction that are the basis of demand for pharmaceutical products will at least not happen while those products are under patent. That in fact, the ideal for, uh, for pharma is a vaccine or something that masquerades as one and therefore gets called things like safe, right? That does not block the spread of disease, but has some credible claim to being desirable so that it will be made into the standard of care and in a really good week for pharma will be inflicted on the public under mandate. 
right? That's what you want is something that doesn't control the disease because the disease is, after all, the reason for the demand, yeah. right? And you wouldn't want to go around curing diseases because, you know, you that would be the naive pharma thing to do. Um, so anyway, my prediction is we're going to see an awful lot of the explosion of schedules of standard of care for items that happen to be profitable. And then we'll see shenanigans like we discussed, I believe, last week, where a perfectly viable drug has now been put into a new triple cocktail that is now suddenly, again, reviving the patentability of the thing, right? You're just going to see endless versions of the same game. And um, anyway, I would love to be proven wrong, but yes. I'm not expecting it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, where, I'm where you are on that. Okay, that is my um, extended update on, uh, on the update on where there is no doctor. All right. We're going to switch gears. Yeah. I have a number of topics I want to talk about. I admit up front, it's a little hard for me. I know that they connect in multiple ways, but how to present them so it's clear is not uh, as obvious to me. But I'm going to start by suggesting that we are in a moment that is nothing if not bewildering, right? That the number of things that seem off-kilter, counterintuitive, broken, deceptive, all of those parameters are have been turned to 11, and I believe that's going to get worse, that the uh, LLM AGI issue is going to amplify the confusion. Large language models, artificial general intelligence, for those who aren't keeping track of every single acronym every that is being thrown at them all the time. That is correct. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, we have talked about the fact that one of the several disasters that is likely to come out of the LLM AGI era, that's large language model, artificial general intelligence, is human confusion, that the inability to know how authentic the thing that you're interacting with is, whether it's a person reporting what an LLM told them, or, you know, somebody who doesn't even didn't even talk to an LLM who's had their perspective altered by some intrusion into the online environment is going to cause us at best to all become very cynical and not believe anything, which is a recipe for disaster. This is that era. Yes. Okay. So, what we have argued up till now is that basically it would be great if there were some rules that you could apply that would at least do a substantial fraction of the heavy lifting of figuring out how to think in this era, right? That's really the, the label for this segment, how to think, right? And I can't tell you how to think, but I can tell you that we are making progress towards some things that are useful. In the context of artificial intelligence, we have given two rules that are useful. One of them is that you should take all of the things that you formerly assumed that are in some way affected by the existence of these large language models um, and soon to be AGI if it's not here already, and you should um, go back to making no assumption, right? You don't have to change your assumption about what's true of the elements on the periodic table or the forces of nature or natural selection as it explains the existence and modification of creatures because those things aren't affected by the AI. But what we believe about the facts of the present is going to be affected by this dramatically. And so the point is things that you could safely assume a few years ago are no longer safe to assume. You have to be agnostic about them. Uh -huh. And then to the extent that you want to take them back on as assumptions, you need to check them specifically, right? That's rule one. Rule two is treat AGI itself like a new species, right? Like something arrived from somewhere else and you know nothing about it, 
This is important because as it happens, the way AGI seems to be showing up in the world or threatening to dawn, it is going to have access to the human API. That is the mechanism by which the human mind is contactable from the outside, human language, right? The LLMs are going to have access to human language because that's how they work. So instead of assuming that a statement by one of these entities is meaningful in the way that it would be if a person said this to you, you should be agnostic about what it means, about what's going on internally, because you don't have any mechanism for knowing how the thing thinks, and therefore treating it like a totally new species is the best you can do, right? It's hard to do in practice, but it is the best you can do. Okay, so that's two prototype rules. Here's a realm artificial intelligence. Here are two rules that you can apply straight out of the box that will make you better off than if you didn't have those rules, right? There may be other rules we should add to that list, but for the moment, we've got two rules and they constitute some sort of a baseline approach. I want to suggest that there's another realm where we can deploy a rule to good effect. We saw... <clears throat> a new chapter of the UFO slash UAP story dawn this week. Again with, with the U's and the P's and the A's. Yeah, yeah. UFO, I got, unidentified flying object. Um, UAP, aerial. aerial phenomena, unidentified aerial phenomena, I think. It's basically a synonym, it's, it's, a, it's a fancy sounding synonym for UFO. I think you're giving it too much credit. It is a rebranding of UFO, and I believe that the I'm not the one who used it. Yeah, I know. I'm giving it credit. <laughs> no, no, you're giving it credit by saying that it's a, a euphemism. And my feeling is UFO had taken on a certain fringe connotation and that somebody decided it was time to have responsible people be ready to talk about these things in polite society. And so it needed a, a refresh. The brand had to be reintroduced to the market, and lo and behold, Kentucky Fried Chicken, which sounded stodgy, is now KFC, and it sounds edgy, right? UAP sounds a whole lot more responsible than UFO, despite describing the same damn thing. That's what I think. Um, but in any case, the... So I don't want a new planet. I want all of them to find a new planet. <laughs> I know just the one. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Do you, oh, you know the one? Yeah. What's, what, what, which I one guess is that? It's not ready yet. Mars. They I don't actually Mars. care. <laughs> <laughs> all right. You don't care. You don't care if it has an atmosphere. Right? I, 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 all right. I'm, oh my God. I'm, I'm okay. still I'm in a sorry. more generous mood. Oh, yeah. But okay. Mm. So okay. you can hear the cynicism. So UFO. Yeah. Uh, so UFO, UAP, the three letter acronyms, on and on and on. on. The, the, the phenomena here you, you're going to employ, you're going to suggest a rule well, for dealing with. Okay, they got a rebranding. They, they've rebranded. We're but, supposed to take it seriously now. Oh, yes, it's the serious stuff yeah. now. Um, but the, the rule is what you might use to look at the news this week. Something new happened in the land of UAPs. What happened? We have a highly credible source who has turned whistleblower and actually now has whistleblower protection testifying under oath that the federal government has multiple alien craft and dead pilots of those craft. It possesses them, which is huge news, unless it's not true, in which case it's huge news of a different kind, but now you have to live in a world where you can't figure out which of those two it is, okay? 
It's Schrodinger's world. <laughs> it's Schrodinger's UFO pilots. Um, I mean, I feel like, but the, I, I think the LLM AGI situation is producing like Schrodinger's reality everywhere. Like you, you, there's so many of these where we where she's like, I just can't know. And, and for some of them, like, you know what? No, I'm just like, where if, if that's if that's true, then then I, I don't care. Like, I'm done. So I'm just going to go with this one. But so many of them is like, I really have to keep these simultaneously, these mutually exclusive things alive at the same time. You are stuck in a quantum superposition nightmare. Right. Yeah. Okay. So this is why you need a rule. Okay. What's the rule? Um, the rule is psyop until proven otherwise. Okay. Now this rule is something I don't oh, so know. So it's a rule about the null hypothesis. Right. It's a rule about the burden of proof. Yeah. Um, and this is either generated in concert with Jeremy Riss, who was a guest on Dark Horse, or maybe it's his. And uh, because we introduced it into the podcast together, it doesn't really matter. Let's say it's Jeremy's and he he's uh, due full credit for it. Nonetheless, the utility of the rule is the following thing. What we have are a lot of phenomena which are increasingly difficult to dismiss, right? A person with proper credentials turning whistleblower on programs that apparently house an attempt to reverse engineer alien aircraft and have in their possession multiple dead pilots, right? That's hard to ignore because what, you know, what has to be true for that story to be garbage? Okay, a lot. On the other hand, the story is kind of hard to swallow without physical evidence that would at least make earthbound scientists stand up and take notice because mm -hmm. it was not explicable by the material sciences that we are aware of, the biology that we are aware of, for example. And so the point is something like this. First of all, there's an awful lot of eyewitness accounts of very profound stuff happening in our skies, right? I don't know how much you've looked at it, but amazing things, right? Craft, trans, uh, moving across space at incredible speeds, turning at rates that not only defy physics, but reason, right? Why? What do you mean? <laughs> Why are the aliens flying like this? I mean, because they're teenage boys. I don't know. No. All right. I have a better <laughs> hypothesis for this one. Okay. No, you, wait. You, you've no. Been, you've been I, that alien. I know. I, okay. <laughs> but I haven't. These aliens are worse than I ever was. Okay. <laughs> they're worse than <laughs> I, I ever was. nothing to say to that. <laughs> no, they are. Look, <laughs> I can prove it. Okay. I can prove it. Okay. okay. Um, <laughs> the aliens... Why are they turning that way, right? Surely there's a better way to do it. What are you doing? Gentler, nicer, easier on the... Sp okay, look, but forget it. Okay, you guys, you defend this. Maybe it's a rental. <laughs> They've got a collision damage, a yeah. galactic collision totally. damage. Waiver. Hell yeah. But no, I still I still have you right where I want you. Okay, great. Okay. On this planet without okay. aliens. You say I was that guy at one point, a younger person. I'm just saying a lot. I'm just, I mean, I, I was a tiny bit. Like how many? Too. Like, how many vehicles have I totaled? I, These aliens are totaling vehicles in Nevada like nobody's business, right? These, I, what? Look. They, they are? Yes. That's where the government got these warehouses full of alien crap. Always in Nevada. 
that's not always in Nevada, but there is a look. Are they interested in the prostitutes? What's going no, on? I can steel man this. I, can, I, <laughs> I, I learned well from my friend Jeremy Riss. Okay. Okay. The steel man of the argument that the preponderance of these things is, you know, in places that, you know, Americans might find entertaining has to do with the fact that nuclear tests were performed here first, and therefore the beacon that we sent into the universe that said that we are okay. ready okay. for uh, punking by the aliens, which is apparently what they're doing, because let's put it this way, we've got now decades of observation. Again, right? see earlier comment about their teenage boys. They could be teenage boys <laughs> punking us, but they're not good at driving, right? They have crashed a lot of these craft according to this new witness. Okay, so anyway, I mean, I, look, well, here's what I'm really telling you. Okay, we can do this all day long. Am I telling you there are no aliens? No, in fact, I'm telling you that everything I know as a biologist tells me that there most certainly are aliens. What I want to know the question is, is one of locale. Yes, have <laughs> yes. it. Look, I could be wrong about that. Maybe we're the only life in the universe, and if we're not the only life, maybe no other intelligent life ever escapes the technology. Uh, the development of the technology necessary to get here. But no, if there are aliens, there, have we been visited and are we being visited? Right. That's and what and, I, and I think, I mean, this, this, that part of this argument will be clear to almost all of our listeners, but let, let us just be very clear, right? Forever, as, as long as I can remember, and I think as probably as long as you can remember too. Like I think both of us, you know, we met each other when we were quite young, but already before we met at like 16, when we, were, we became friends, um, we both understood that we believed that there almost there had to be lots of different evolutions of life in the universe, some of which would be sentient, um, actually, including in the galaxy. They don't. Right? They don't have to be, but the probability um, suggests. The, the, the probability suggests that, that is the case. That 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 we are not alone. It's but a very we are big not universe. alone. Is a, is a phrase that often gets said, and then the assumption is that you're not saying the part about like right here. And the we are not alone conclusion never imagined that that meant like everyone's here because the it's the scale, both space and time of, yes, the entire universe, but even just of our galaxy that allows biologists in particular, but lots of other people to say, you know what, almost certainly, yes, life has happened elsewhere, but it's not here. Well, we don't know. I'm, I'm open to it any day of the week that the aliens want to settle this. And here's the thing. Aliens who want to show off in our skies and not show up and talk to us about what it is don't make a hell of a lot of sense to me. I'm not saying it's impossible, mm -hmm. but there's no yep. reason for aliens to be revealing themselves, zipping around our skies and crashing into our deserts without actually showing up and saying, look, here's what we've got to tell you. Or you know, take us to your leader or uh, <laughs> resistance is useless or any of the other things that they might say. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So the point is we've got anomalous aliens who are very interested in um, causing a problem for small numbers of people who have these encounters they can't shake and other people who look at them like they're nuts. Why are the aliens doing that? If the aliens want to talk, let's talk. And if they don't want to talk, then the question is, are they really aliens or are they something else? Right. Hence, hence the rule. The rule. The null hypothesis is we are alone here. No, the null hypothesis is the observation in question, the report in question, the video in question is a psyop until proven otherwise. So the conclusion is the same, but your framing is specifically around what is that then? The rule is psyop until proven otherwise. Right. And again, my point is about the thing which you, whoever you are, are putting in front of me or whoever else. Mm -hmm. 
If your point is, how do you explain that? My answer is PSYOP until proven otherwise. Mm -hmm. The moment you show me something where PSYOP is not an obvious possibility, I'm all ears. I'm not saying that there aren't aliens who would be interested in us and come by. They might. Are they barred from doing so by physics? We don't know. We sort of think so, but, you know, people who know better than I do think those rules may not be as absolute as we thought, okay? I'm I'm totally open to the possibility of aliens, but I'm sick here. and tired Let's of... Be, be precise. Here. Yeah, I'm totally cool with the idea of aliens showing up here, and actually I almost think it's one of the few things that might break us out of our terrible trajectory. So there's a part of me that's hopeful for it. Mm -hmm. But... I'm sick of pixels. I'm sick of eyewitness reports of aircraft that do amazing things and make no noise, right? It's unlikely. Now, of course, the PSYOP can start introducing noise. Sure can. I mean, we saw what I think is a really garbagey version of this whole thing uh, where uh, there was a 911 call from a family who had something crash in their backyard. There were aliens eight, 10 feet tall. The police came. The police had caught the object falling out of the sky on a, a whatever you call it a body cam right so you know the story like superficially it's like whoa the cops caught it on their cam and these people are calling saying they're aliens standing around their backyard they seem to have forgotten to film them i don't know maybe these people don't have cell phones mm, um but uh they didn't catch it they report that the aliens when they you know that the, there was an alien hiding behind a forklift and uh the the young man was it a biped that's the implication. Now, sure. nobody seems to have thought to draw a picture of what they saw, which I can't quite explain. Um, Stretched out humanoid. Right. No doubt, because that's always what the aliens look like. <laughs> right. So, you know, I don't know. Maybe, they're, maybe mm -hmm. their bow plan constraints are great enough that it's more limited than you know. You know how I, I feel about that. Of but, course. But yeah. I'm open to us being wrong about any of this. Sure. I just want something yes. that constitutes actual evidence where the most parsimonious explanation is not someone would like you to believe there are aliens mm -hmm. right when that's the most parsimonious explanation <clears throat> my point is my guess is if there are aliens and they're coming here i'm likely to miss them by a hundred years a thousand years could be a while mm -hmm. right the idea that we just happen to be here and you know trump and aliens are happening at the same time <laughs> right it's like uh, okay maybe you're just trying to get me excited that's what you're doing you're feeding me story after story that I can't resist thinking about because you don't want me thinking about, I don't know, uh, corruption and Ukraine mm. or something. Right? Yeah. I don't know. But anyway, Trump, the rule. COVID, George Floyd, trans. It's a never. Ukraine, right, aliens. It's a never ending sequence of stories that makes us feel like this is the moment when it's all happening. And um, anyway, Sigh up until proven otherwise. And Good. I welcome that it is proven otherwise as soon as possible. But, you know, really, you got, yeah, two, I'd like to know. You got two entities mm -hmm. that can do it. The aliens can do it mm -hmm. any day they want to do it. And the government can let somebody into that warehouse, you know, so we can talk about what technology it is or what materials it is that can't be explained uh, as earthly in origin. And better still, the alien pilots... Because that here you're not talking about technology that we yeah. just don't know the government has. I want, you're talking I see about biology, mm -hmm. and yep. the point is actually biologists might be able to look at that and say earthly or not, right, or biological or not. Yeah. Um, 
Okay, so that's the setup. You need some rules that allow you to take care of your quantum superposition problem, and PSYOP, until proven otherwise, is the one to use for UAPs. And I would advise okay. all sorts of people to use that rule because I believe that to the extent that something wants us to believe the UAPs are really extraterrestrial in origin, it is especially interested in uh, important people. Okay. Now I want to move into the second phase, which is that I'm, in terms of trying to get people to figure out how to think so that the world is less complex and they can make some kind of meaningful, useful sense from it that they can actually navigate their lives, I want to talk about a category that I have spotted, which I think it needs a name and I don't know it, but the category is important concepts that are destructive in the way they are deployed, right? So these are concepts that you don't want to dispense with because they matter, but the way they are being deployed is more harmful than it is useful. Um, so let me give you some examples. The right side of history, okay? The right side of history to me is an incredibly important concept, right? The Nazis were on the wrong side of history, right? You want, in retrospect, to have been on the side that opposed them and as early as possible, right? The same thing can be said for the segregationists, right? You don't want to be on the side of the segregationists or those who uh, defended um, Jim Crow laws or any of these things. The right side of history is obvious in retrospect, okay? That said, declaring yourself on the right side of history is uh, not a simply interpreted move. In other words, I certainly live my life trying to be on the side of history that will be understood to be the right side of history in retrospect. Correctly understood. Correctly understood. But saying that you're on the right side of history isn't evidence one way or the other. And we can take the example of so-called affirmative care, right? The affirmative care folks, some of them I believe to be cynical, some of them I believe to be very confused. The confused ones... Just specify, affirmative care means that when a child declares that they are the sex that they are not, but not when they declare that they're a donut, uh, that they are definitely the sex that they are not, and that you must affirm them in every way that you can. Right. You Unless they think they're a donut, in right. which case you don't. And you don't even, uh, you know, the state of California is experimenting this week. Uh, I don't believe this has become law of the state of California, but they're experimenting with a law... Uh, in which parents would be obligated to deliver so-called affirmative care at the indication of a child that they were the, not the sex that mm. they were thought to be, which to me is the height of diabolical. Yeah. Um, but the point is, to a person truly confused about this issue... The you have idea to make a person want aliens. <laughs> right. Um, enough with the PSYOP, bring on the aliens. Totally. Um, <clears throat> So the point is, the person who thinks that they are protecting a child who is going to be harmed by not receiving affirmative care, that person thinks they're on the right side of history, and they are certainly not. But the point is, yep. both sides of history, one or the other of these is going to be the right side of history for certain, right? Because either these are people in desperate need of help, or yep. you're about to maim them mm -hmm. while thinking that you're helping them. Okay. So that's one concept. The concept is important, right side of history, but mm -hmm. the abuse of it is uh, very troubling and common. Um, second one, 
I would say is the, you might've seen the formulation, you know, this person's, this person is a dumb person's idea of a smart person. Now. I haven't run into this. Okay. The idea that there are people who are not smart, but their niche is to um, behave as people who aren't very smart will understand them to be smart. That is a particular kind of a con, right? So, oh, I've seen faculty do it a lot. Sure. Oh, oh, absolutely. Actually, it's an epidemic inside of the academy. There are lots of people who aren't smart who, you know, have the affectations of somebody who is deeply learned and elbow knowledgeable. Yeah. Everything. <laughs> Chalk on the elbows. Yeah, the whole thing. Um, <laughs> so there is a real thing, a dumb person's idea of a smart person. Okay. And there are probably more decent ways to put that, yeah. right? Dumb is a bit provocative, but whatever. But you will then see, you know, on Twitter, for example, somebody will say, oh, name a, you know, a person who is a dumb person's idea of a smart person, right? And then you will get a flood of answers, including me and you and Joe Rogan and Jordan Peterson and all sorts of folks. And the basic point is, ah, this is a trap. If you put this label on somebody, dumb person's idea of a smart person, and then somebody looks at it and they think, wait, I thought that person was smart. I guess I must be dumb, right? So the point is that thing is like, you know, it's a, it's a trick in order to keep you from listening to somebody by claiming that if you think what they say is good, then that's an indictment of you, Mm -hmm. right? You don't get to do that. You didn't buy their stuff, did you? Right. God, anybody who doesn't understand, you know, mm-hmm. anybody who doesn't understand, you know, that uh, Heather Hying is a, you know, a faker who, you know, obviously didn't earn a meaningful degree in biology, right? The point is, uh, no, that's not true, but you've just, you've just leveled an accusation. Well, it again, it reverses, it, again, with the null hypothesis, it reverses the null hypothesis. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not perfectly, that's not a perfectly clean analysis, but um, the idea that someone who has begun to listen uh, to, to you or to me or to Joe Rogan or to Jordan Peterson or to any number of people and has begun to get something out of it, has begun to feel themselves awakened perhaps and begin to take on new kinds of analyses that maybe they couldn't before, but it's not conscious and we're not writing curriculum here. And so we haven't provided a list of like, these are the things that you can now do. And these are what, you know, these are the changes that you will see in yourself. And so if someone lobs and especially into social media space, and again, like I've never seen this because I'm blissfully unaware of most of what goes on there. Someone lobs into that, like, oh, you're not buying that bullshit, are you? Like, well, but I... I was being, I I thought I was more aware and being transformed. And no, there isn't. Now that you see that, there isn't anything that I can actually point to, is there? And it's not the job of the person, especially who is learning anew how to do a certain kind of analysis or view the world through a particular lens and then through a different lens and a different lens to back up and say, here is a list. Here's the list of things that I, you know, I have learned which demonstrate to me or that she has said or he has said or they have said uh, that demonstrates to me that they're actually smart. Like it's, it's no one's obligation to demonstrate that someone from whom they are learning is actually smart. If they are learning from that person, uh, then it is effective. Well, it is, that is true. And the 
fact that as you try to struggle out of this argument, it gets worse and not better, right? Yeah. If I say, oh, I'm calling your bluff, I think Heather Hying is very insightful, then the point is, oh, right? So the point is, the more you insist that this person actually is smart, mm -hmm. the more you indict your own in intellect and ability to discern, mm -hmm. right? And so the point is, that's just logically unfair, yep. right? That, that I simply disagree yep. cannot be the argument that calls your own intellect into question, right? right? So anyway, it's a, it's, a, um, it's, a, it's a Chinese finger trap or it's a mist net. The more you struggle, mm -hmm. the worse it gets for you. That's not a fair argument. Um, okay, now the, the one that I wanted to focus on most though is the concept of controlled opposition, mm. okay? So somebody leveled this accusation at me this week. You need to define it first. Well, that was the question. What does it mean? Okay. So controlled opposition superficially means that this person is uh, on the correct side of the argument, but that they are actually more useful to the people on the other side of the argument because they either provide a tepid version of it or um, they will reverse their position at the last minute. They will do something. So, you know, if, um, if the CIA killed John F. Kennedy, right, and it didn't want us to know that, it might have somebody in the world of researchers who study this question who deployed part of the evidence for this, but cast doubt on other even more important evidence or just somehow polluted the question or um, you know, turned out to have something in their history that made them unreliable so that people who glommed on to their version of the story ended up embarrassed, whatever it was, yep. okay? So here's the problem. Controlled opposition is a very real phenomenon, okay? Sophisticated actors use controlled opposition to keep us from getting where we need to go in civilization. So it's a very important concept. You wouldn't want to live without it in this era. But as an accusation, it's diabolical. And here's the reason. So I asked, after this person accused me of being controlled opposition, I asked my Twitter followers, does that accusation imply that the person in question would be knowledgeable that they are controlled opposition, or might it be true without their awareness? Mm -hmm. There was near universal agreement that the person in question would not have to be aware, right? That you could be controlled opposition and not even know. So now we have a meaningless term, right? Are we controlled opposition because YouTube tried to manipulate us into altering our message about COVID remedies by demonetizing our channel. I think they certainly tried to control us, but it didn't work, mm -hmm. right? We kept doing what we were doing. So are we controlled opposition because somebody desired to control us or are we not controlled opposition because we resisted? In which case, when you see this accusation leveled at people, the question is, well, what are you really saying? Are you saying they're being successfully controlled? Are you saying that somebody has put them on a list on a board somewhere and decided to try to control them. It's a completely unfalsifiable, meaningless way to dismiss people who are on the correct side of an argument, which also means that it is an unfair kind of competition to the extent that all of us are trying to put a message into the universe that we hope people will find valuable. And there's a limited amount of attention. 
The idea that you can just take somebody who is doing a better job of that than you are and say, oh, well, that's controlled opposition. You wouldn't want to listen to them, mm. right? And the point is, well, it's a devastating argument. It's just that it didn't require anything of you like evidence, right? You just said the fact that that person is making sense is evidence that you shouldn't listen to them. It's like, well, because they're making sense, I shouldn't listen to them. Well, that's what controlled opposition is. They make sense and you shouldn't listen to them because somebody else has decided it's in their interest for you to listen to this version. So the point is, it's like, you know, it's like, you know, dumping LSD on an argument, right? It's not going (laughs) to clarify anything, right? So anyway, my point is this, this, this category I'm building are arguments or terms that are important, but where the use of them is actually highly destructive, Mm. right? And my three examples were controlled opposition, the right side of history, and a dumb person's idea of a smart person. Yep. Um, so anyway, it's probably a much bigger category. Oh, undoubtedly, undoubtedly a huge category. And um, I mean, I think you know the language games are cheap and so powerful. And the return on investment is incredible. Yeah, the return on investment is huge. And you know, we see we've already talked earlier in this uh, in this episode about you know other ways that language is is played with. You know, from the eradication of using male and female when talking about you know who's getting pregnant and who's impregnating, uh, to you know, oh, what we have to do first is to uh, make sure that everyone understands how important and valuable vaccines are, and then all we have to do is just call anything we want a vaccine. And then we can vilify anyone who doesn't agree with it because, well, well you're, you're an anti-vaxxer. So it's not the same kind of language play, but it's similarly cheap. You know, in the, in, the case of, in the case of what is being done to the concept of vaccines, it required a decades-long investment, right, uh, to make sure that the vast majority of us were on board Right, that we actually agreed that yes, vaccines are good, are a societal good, and um, that we appreciate that they have helped. Uh, so I don't, you know, it's a totally open question, one that I have not really given any thought to as to whether or not what is happening now with the term uh, was imagined at any time in the past. Um, but it was just waiting there, easy pickings, like, oh, well, now that we've got everyone, almost everyone on board with the concept of, you know, the, the vast utility of vaccines, all we have to do is just shove a bunch of stuff into that category that uh, that isn't right. And, uh, you know, at some point probably people will wake up, but hopefully it'll be a while. So I think what we are honing in on is language. Language is, a you know, I've called it earlier in this, uh, in this podcast, the human API. Right. There is cognition. Human beings are unique in the ability to pass abstractions from one mind to the other and have them be, you know, erected in the new mind in a reasonably complete form. How is this done? Through an absolutely miraculous process where one person literally vibrates the air molecules in some way they don't even, couldn't explain how they're doing it, and it lands in a little membrane in the ear and the side of the head of the other person and wobbles just so that precise meanings are transmitted between people who share the same code, right? That's stunning. But the point is that thing that is exchanged, the words, the vibrations that are used to transmit them, or if it's on a written page, the organization of pigments so that people can deduce the the symbols in question, 
Those things are not the meaning. This is a version of the map is not the territory, mm -hmm. right? The language that we use to explain an idea is not the idea, right? Right. Yep. And so what you're really describing- Yeah, actually postmodernism makes the, the map as the territory error. Yeah. Actually, well, it really is analogous. I, think I, it, I hadn't thought of it in those terms before, but- I think it really is. Yeah. And so the idea is, look, if you have an antagonist who wants to tangle your thinking so that you become helpless, what they do is they subordinate. In fact, they disassociate from the meaning layer and they descend into the language layer, the means of exchange, mm -hmm. and they tangle it with sophistry. They right. game the language so that you cannot make sense. And if you can even manage to make sense to yourself, you can't make sense to the next person because they've placed all these booby traps. And, uh, and the point is, you know, one of the rules that we need to, um, to name, to codify, mm -hmm. has to do something with an obligation to the underlying reality where language is simply a tool used to get there. And what we should do is seek to clarify our language such that we can talk our way out of the trap we find ourselves in together, right? To the extent that the language is getting in our way and we're fighting over definitions and all of these things, the point is all of that is beside the point. We're destroying the meaning layer while we're fighting over the language layer. And really mm -hmm. the meaning layer, you know, nature bats last. The meaning layer bats last, right? Mm -hmm. Our confusions about um, sex and gender are not going to result in a language catastrophe. They're going to result in a developmental and reproductive catastrophe. Mm -hmm. um, and that has to be paramount, right? We have, to, we have to restore that idea that the real world exists. And although most of what we do as humans is done through the language layer, it's not what any of this is about. Okay, so the last part of what I wanted to do yep. is talk about a couple of things that emerged into the news this week, one of which is uh, highly sensational, and the other one is almost entirely obscure. I think they're both very important. But in this new space where we are trying to figure out how to make sense of the world despite the, um, the hall of mirrors that is being constructed around all meaning. Ooh. And so the two, the two things are the indictment of President Trump for the, um, I don't even know what the term is, for his taking of classified documents to Mar-a-Lago. Obviously a sensational story. This is a, I believe that this is the only case of a sitting or former president uh, indicted for a federal crime. Um, anyway, for those who want to understand more about the legal nuances here, I would recommend Glenn Greenwald's um, system update from yesterday where he explores this. Um, but let's talk for a minute about what it means and what the proper way, the proper context to be thinking about it might be. And then we'll get to the other issue, which is much more obscure, but I think potentially as important or more so. Mm -hmm. So first of all, there's a question here about the sensational fact of President Trump being indicted for a crime that could literally put him in prison. Um, there is a question about how to think about the issue legally, and it is far from a straightforward situation. 
right? The man did have the documents and they were classified. But there are nuances here which are incredibly important. One of them is that the president has the authority to unclassify anything that the president wants to unclassify at any time the president wishes to unclassify it. And so if it is true that the president took classified documents and was not entitled to, he also had the power to make himself entitled to. So at some level, it's like a clerical question. He didn't file the right papers to be allowed to take the things that he took, but he had the right to file the papers. So is that something worth putting a former president in jail over? It doesn't seem like it. That's one piece of context that I think is very important. Now, I did ask a legal authority, is there a procedure that he was supposed to go through that he might not have so he would be technically guilty of this crime? And what I was told, and I will check it with others and make sure that we're all on the same page about what is being said, is that there actually is no procedure. And so if that's true, then how does a president declassify material? Well, maybe he treats it in a way that it's not classified. Maybe he takes it home, right? Maybe he's just simply not guilty on the basis that what he did declassified the documents and therefore this is just all nonsense, right? That's one important question. It's a lot of nonsense regardless. Oh, there's a lot of nonsense. I mean, second issue is Joe Biden did the same damn thing, okay? Except for one thing, okay? Joe Biden took documents home that were classified, right? So we've got a selective prosecution question here. Why are we prosecuting Donald Trump and not Joe Biden? But it's worse by about a thousand times. You know why? Because when Biden did it, he was vice president. Without the ability to declassify the documents that he took. Exactly. So it's, in fact, if I understand it, and again, I'm always open to being corrected by people who understand this landscape better than I do. But if I understand this landscape, Joe Biden committed a crime. Trump arguably didn't. And that we would be prosecuting Trump and not Joe Biden is conspicuous. Mm, yeah. Um, further, this is a moment at which Joe Biden, and you know, maybe this is all happening to distract from the fact that Joe Biden appears to have taken $5 million in what sure looks like a bribe in the same scheme in which Hunter Biden took another $5 million uh, surrounding Burisma Energy and Ukraine. So we're talking about a president who appears to be guilty of some very serious, consequential stuff. Um, influence peddling, which frankly, I must have said right. a hundred times yep. during the 2020 election as we were uh, trying to advance the idea of Unity 2020. I kept saying, look, Joe Biden is a non-starter. Why? He is an influence peddler, and you can't have such a person as president, right? You did. Um, and so, okay, lo and behold, five million bucks to the big guy. Okay, and that turns out to be the real deal, and it's not $500,000, it's $5 million. That's a large amount of money, and there is now a war in Ukraine, and none of us know how any of these things fit together. But nonetheless, we should be very seriously concerned about the Biden family influence peddling. And at the moment, what we seem to be concerned about is the appearance that Donald Trump seems to have taken documents that by some analysis he wasn't entitled to take, but even the people who make that analysis would have to admit that he had the right to take them through some other mechanism. So it's like an, you know, 
it's like a nothing burger without even a patty, right? <laughs> it's okay. the ultimate nothing burger, right? Yeah. It, <laughs> um, okay, but so I find the story fascinating. I find the selective prosecution aspect of it absolutely maddening. And the idea that if there is a crime, oh, by the way, uh, one of the things that Glenn Greenwald is very clear about in his system update is that Washington, official Washington, classifies stuff just out of reflex. It classifies all kinds of things that have no reason to be classified. And so even just the fact that, oh, classified documents were taken does not mean that these were highly secret important things. It just means somebody marked them secret, mm -hmm. right? So, all right, all of that is very interesting. And then there's the second question, which is, um, why would the elites be playing this game, right? For one thing, maybe I don't get it, but I feel like they are playing directly into Trump's hands in an election in which there are a lot of other ways to go. If he got to run from prison, man, this is born to be a martyr. I mean, frankly, I've never voted for the man. I'm not planning to vote for the man, but they are making an argument for voting for him that is getting ever harder to ignore, which is that they are so terrified of him that they will they will use anything to stop him, including a completely flimsy legal argument that could land him in jail, which would, ah, the whole thing doesn't make sense. So, you know, it's like, okay, we agree that there's a terrifying bear outside the cabin and the DNC has a plan to deal with it. It's going to go shoot the bear. And so it grabs its BB gun and it empties the BB gun into the bear and the bear notices. <laughs> and now what? Right? Like, no, it, you, why did the you? The DNC assures us we got more BBs. Well, we do. I have We've to, got so many BBs. I gotta wonder. I mean, look, okay. Is the DNC trying to elect Trump because they're afraid of Robert Kennedy Jr.? They are afraid of Robert Kennedy Jr. I mean, I don't even know if I'm kidding. Right? This is a dumb plan for dealing with a guy like Trump. This is playing right into Trump's hands. Is it possible? I mean, I've said, and I was not kidding, that I believe the DNC fears Robert Kennedy Jr. much more than it fears Trump. It would rather live under a Trump administration than deal with Bobby Kennedy Jr. in a position of power. Um, so this would be one interpretation of what's happening here. I don't, I, it's hard for me to imagine that they would do that. But here's, here's where I come out on it. I don't want to vote for Trump because I really don't think he's the right guy for that job. I do think he is facing, he is revealing, he is the story that diagnoses the system, right? Mm -hmm. Donald Trump is a terrible problem for elites because he's his own elite and he doesn't listen to them, right? So the point is to the extent that they've got a nice little racket going, they do not want this particular bull in a china shop or wrecking ball or whatever you're... Right. metaphor is for Trump. Yeah. And so the point is they will break out all kinds of exotic stuff. You know, they will, uh, whatever happened to the actual election, they will certainly move outside of the election and do things like suppress important stories about Joe Biden's son, right? So, you know, a conspiracy does exist against Trump. That forces you to think about Trump in some different way. That's a very unfortunate thing for them to have done. But here's, here's the punchline. Robert Kennedy Jr. and Donald Trump 
are both threats to the underlying thing, the anti-democratic, unpatriotic thing that exerts this kind of control, right? They're both a different kind of elite that doesn't listen to the establishment. Yeah. But Kennedy has um, gravitas and knowledge and statesmanship and um, depth. Let us say, at the very least, Bobby Kennedy has a... um, an excellent knowledge of history. I believe he has clear integrity that he is not obsessed with aggrandizing himself. In fact, has paid very heavy prices to do what he believed to be the right thing in the face of incredible pushback. And so um, we have two versions of a threat to something that is reacting in a way that reveals just how vile it is. They would go after you know, a former president with a flimsy argument over his possession of documents that he was entitled to take if he wanted to, right? That is um, appalling. And, you know, we are, we are historically stuck with a question, right? Are we, what kind of republic, what flavor of republic are we to have? Are we to have a democratic republic or a banana republic? If you like banana, then, you know, we can play these games and we can go after each other's presidents with exotic legal theories and, you know, nonsense and, you know, gotchas and whatever. Or we could try to actually govern in the interests of the people the way the founders decided that we should do it. And I think we are at the moment where we get to choose. And my feeling is whatever it is that's doing this has to go. And the question is, by what mechanism, mm-hmm. right? Do you want the wrecking ball bull in a china shop or do you want... Um, the passionate, careful uh, student of history who um, loves this country. Beholden. Right. Who is not also beholden. not beholden. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. I know which one I want. Yeah, me too. Um, second piece here, uh, the news story that I said was very important but has gotten very little press. <clears throat> it is today the 9th of June? 10th. 10th of June. 10th of June, which makes Monday the 12th. Am I right? Monday is the 12th. The 12th is, as I understand it, the first day of the largest NATO air exercise in history. It will begin on Monday in Europe, involves hundreds of different aircraft, and it, you know, in addition to being the largest exercise ever by NATO, it also has uh, at least one very unusual feature. So I believe the exercise is something that is done periodically, maybe even yearly. But this Defender 23 exercise is going to include the Japanese this time, right? This is NATO, North Atlantic Treaty Organization. The Japanese are not in the Atlantic, and as far as I know, they are not moving to the Atlantic. So... This is odd that they would be included in the exercise. It could send a very interesting message to China. That's a possibility that uh, this is about some piece of history yet to emerge. Um, It also is strangely juxtaposed by the fact that the Luftwaffe, yes, the Luftwaffe, that Luftwaffe, the German Air Force, is in charge of this exercise, which all suggests that this is a rather... Dangerous. And, and how often are the Luftwaffe in charge? Well, I don't know <laughs> because such an this story has barely been reported, and I can't understand how it would not be. 
right? The very fact that we have a very hot war being fought in Ukraine, that that war is at least, um, at least exists in the context of the Russians having extracted a promise that we would not expand NATO to the east, which we then did. So what role that plays in the invasion of Ukraine, I cannot say. But I can say that NATO and its expansionist instincts are relevant to the conflict in Ukraine. And in the middle of that conflict, in which one of the parties is our Cold War adversary with a ferocious nuclear arsenal, that we are engaged in a military flex the largest NATO exercise uh, of its kind in history that we've put the Germans, the enemies of the Russians, in charge of it. We've invited the Japanese. And almost... the Italians? Are they coming? Or... <laughs> okay. I, I don't know. I should have checked. I assume yeah. that they're involved. I don't think they have the biggest air force. But well, they're, they're also not in the North Atlantic, so right, they should be. True. But um... anyway, I don't know. But anyway, the point is, look, let's just even just run a little thought exercise. Mm -hmm. If NATO decided to move a huge force of aircraft to Europe at this moment, right, it would be noteworthy. Does this have anything to do with what's going on in Ukraine? Is this defensive or is this offensive, right? Those are questions that are legitimate to ask. How Instead, dare you, sir? <laughs> right. Yeah. Instead, what we've got is an exercise, you know, is NATO moving aircraft to Europe? Yes. One oh, has to it, practice. For an act, right, exactly. Mm -hmm. So anyway, as always, I am completely open to information that would tell me I am seeing a mirage. But I do think, from my perspective, having read, you know, articles in out-of-the-way places about this happening, that we are engaged in a undeclared flex against Russia in the middle of of a hot war in Ukraine, and that that is at least something that we would want to think very carefully before doing, because the last thing we want to do is take this highly kinetic war and turn it into a nuclear exchange, right? NATO flexing on the doorstep of Ukraine at this moment is a topic that should be much more discussed than I hear it being. And anyway, that's my point. Why is this hiding outside of our sight as if nothing is going on? Because it's obviously something. Defender 13 is what it's called. Yep. Okay. Oh, yeah. no, Defender 23. Oh, Defender 23. 23. Well, I got that. I'm way off. Who knows yeah. what Defender 13 is? <laughs> oh. I don't know. Maybe it happened in, uh, I don't know, 2013. Yeah, perhaps. Uh, well, yeah, I have, I really don't know what to say. So I'm I'm not going to comment at the moment. I that's more insanity. Tell me I'm overreacting. <laughs> you know I, I I can't. You hope I am. I can't do that. Yeah, I I only know what you've told me here. Uh, you said you said a few things to me about this yesterday, but I have not. I have no independent knowledge of any of it. It doesn't. Can we? It, it doesn't seem to make sense. Can we at least agree that it's weird that it's not um, news in light of what's going on in Ukraine? Yeah. Yep. Yep. All right. Well, I hope I'm overreacting. Um, maybe we'll get through next week. That'd be cool. 
Okay. <laughs> and this is why people are interested in talking about aliens. Of course, for which we have a rule. Yes. Yes. And I think that that rule applies not just to people trying to make sense of the situation. It also makes, uh, it applies to aliens trying to make sense of the situation. Yeah, well, the fact that they have employed that rule, if, if, if they're in fact here, they have employed that rule, and they've gotten through their version of whatever stupid we're living through right now. Like, they, they did it. They figured it out. I mean, they're a space-faring species. Or more than one, we don't know. Okay. Okay. Well, that was long, um, but we promised a Q&A today. Yep. So we're going to take a break. Uh, we're going to do all of our post-amble stuff here that's usually a preamble, and uh, and then we're going to take a little break, and we're going to come back with a Q&A, but we're going to try to keep it brief because that, that went on for a while. So if you want to ask questions, excuse me, uh, you can go to darkhorsesubmissions.com to ask your questions. You can also find us, find me at Natural Selections. Um where I write um, weekly or nearly weekly about things such as this time, this week I was writing about different kinds of conspiracy um, and also about malaria prophylaxis. And it was kind of fun to do so. Uh, you know, how, how mefloquine ends up affecting your brain such that you wonder if you're actually paranoid uh, because of the, of the malaria prophylaxis you're on or if they're really out to get you. Maybe there's mefloquine in the water. That would explain <laughs> Maybe a lot. Maybe there's mefloquine in the water. Yep. Uh, so, and and you've got stuff going on on Twitter now. You've got a Twitter subscription thing going on, encouraging people to go there. Yep. Right? Yep. I will be delivering some stuff this week. So hang tight if you've subscribed. It's coming. Awesome. Uh, we have, of course, uh, some some stuff that you could buy if you want Dark Horse merch. That's at darkhorsestore.com. Org, the print shop who makes all of our stuff, is uh, right here in the U.S. And uh, it's a lo lovely, lovely couple who who does the stuff. We, you know, we have the ideas, and we work with a wonderful artist to create the art. And you've got, you know, epic tabbies and um, dire wolves and and Pfizer uh, breakthrough and all sorts of good stuff there. So that's at darkhorsestore.org. We of course have our book, Hunter Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century, available everywhere, and there are signed copies available right here in the islands uh, at Darvilles, D-A-R-V-I-L-L-S, uh, and you can go online and find them, uh, find copies there as well if you're not here in the islands. And we have Patreons, of course. We now have locals as well. We got a lot of stuff going on. We're trying to trying to coalesce, but. Uh, at the moment, um, we are a little bit more active on Patreon. You've got two weekly, two monthly conversations. Uh, we together do a private Q&A at mine. Right now, the, uh, the question asking period is open at my Patreon for our monthly private Q&A, which will happen next week. And you can get access to our Discord server and either of our Patreons, where there's conversations all the time in many media on all sorts of topics, plus book clubs and happy hours and karaoke and real-life meetups. And I don't know which one you were smiling at, but was it the karaoke? Uh, yes, I was. that was a fear that I would be called upon to do karaoke. Right now? No. Yeah. Okay. No, I'm not, not going to do that to you. Um... And the wonderful people on Discord send us a question um, each week that we start our Q&As with. So we'll be starting, we'll be hearing from Discord uh, shortly as soon as we come back. And um, again, check out our wonderful sponsors for this week, which were iHerb, American Heart for Gold, and MD Hearing Aid. And a reminder that we are supported by you, our audience. We're on Rumble now. Subscribe to the Rumble channel. Please. Uh, and uh, check us out anywhere that you can find us, which is lots of places. And share, subscribe, like, uh, do all of that. And until we see you next time, 
remember to be good to the ones you love, eat good food, and get outside. Be well, everyone. <laughs>